Here we go. Roll video. I think anybody creating something new must have an adventure. It's not cinema, it's something else. My advice to a young filmmaker is to make a movie every week. The whole bag of movies can be learned in about a day and a half. But suspense is essentially an emotional process. You gotta, you gotta, you gotta make films, you gotta make it and get a scene. Cinema for me is a world of when I dream. Hello, everybody. Welcome back to Behind the Slate. I'm your host, Aaron Strand, and this is part four of Charlie Chaplin. Thank you so much for your patience. I had a little technical difficulties in getting an episode out last week, so I've been itching to go on this one, and I am so excited to get into it. Now, first, if you haven't listened to our first three parts on Chaplin and want to go through the story chronologically, you might want to go back and play those early episodes. Or if you just want to hop in here, by all means, feel free, live your life. I want to thank everybody who has reached out to me via Instagram or email. All your positive feedback, ooh, it feels so good. Your encouragement means so much to me over this past couple months as this show has gotten off its feet. As always, you can contact me at behindtheslatepod at gmail.com. That's behindtheslatepod at gmail.com. Or DM me on Instagram at behindtheslatepod. With all that being said, let's get right into the story. When we last left off, Chaplin had divorced his teenage wife, Lita Gray, and barely escaped a criminal charge of tax fraud. His womanizing and partying had become a manic addiction that left him gaunt, exhausted, and wondering if his reign at the top of the Hollywood marquee was finally coming to an end. His fears were accelerated by a revolutionary invention that had swept through theaters during his chaotic two-year production, sound. Now, the idea of syncing sound and moving pictures had been around from the very beginning. In 1888, Edward Muybridge had met with Thomas Edison and proposed a scheme to combine his image-casting zoopraxiscope with Edison's cylinder phonograph. The meeting ended with no agreement, but as is usually the case with Thomas Edison, don't tell him an idea without a patent in hand. Within a year, Edison had commissioned the development of the kinetoscope, which was his first attempt at motion picture distribution. It was a large device, like a big wooden box, where a single audience member could watch a film by looking through a small peephole. In 1895, he developed this further into the kinetophone, which added his cylinder sound to a kinetoscope viewing system. But soon these were all deemed irrelevant by the scale and success of large screen film projection. You know, it's so interesting to think that most of us now watch videos or even whole movies alone on small screens, either a laptop or a phone. And this viewing experience was actually more similar to the one that Edison first dreamed up 130 years ago. Kind of crazy. Anyway, around 1900, there was a boom of projected film sound inventions, mostly in Paris, including one called the Cinemacrophonograph, but none of them really caught on. Maybe the names are all too long. There were several things holding this development back. The first was electric amplification of sound was not invented yet. The electric amplifier was invented in 1912, and even then, the fidelity of both audio recording and audio projection was not very good. By the late 1910s, as giant thousand-seat movie palaces were being built, 
There was no way to amplify recorded sound in those spaces and have it be anything pleasant, intelligible, or cost-effective. Instead, the great movie palaces built giant pipe organs that simulated every instrument in an orchestra and could all be played by a single person. But sound amplification wasn't even the biggest problem holding back the sound revolution. It was synchronization. Now, if you've ever made a movie in which you recorded your video and audio separately, you know how important it is to make sure that you are perfectly synced. Even the slightest offset between the video track and the audio track can be detected by the audience, who sometimes aren't even aware of what's happening. They just know something's wrong. Well, this was a time when movie cameras were hand-cranked without any consistent frame rate. In fact, camera operators were trained to vary their cranking speed, sometimes under-cranking certain scenes so that when they were played back, they would appear faster than real life. Now, there was no way for the sound and the video to stay consistently together. In fact, the most successful experiment was in 1914 when a restorationist minister named Charles Taze Russell created the Photodrama of Creation. This early film was a mix of motion pictures and colorized slides synchronized to a gramophone disc recording of a sermon, and it told the story of creation to the modern day. It was eight and a half hours long. It would be shown to audiences in four parts, and get this, over nine million people paid to see it. But while God was working his magic amongst the Protestants of America, a German physicist was discovering more mundane miracles. Ernst Rumer discovered an amazing process. By using a rudimentary microphone to turn sound into electric current, and then feeding that current through an incandescent lamp, and then capturing those light fluctuations through a cylindrical lens that imprinted the light on moving film, he could create a photographic record of sound waves, which could then be reverse processed using the same technology as a telephone receiver to produce the sound again. He called his invention the photographone. Struggling to capitalize on his discovery, he began talking to a French-born inventor named Eugene Laust, who had worked at Edison's lab in the 1880s. Laust eventually purchased the photographone from Rumor and refined the process, recording the sound waves on a tiny strip on the side of celluloid motion picture film, ensuring that the sound and the image would forever be synchronized. Laust would spend over a decade trying to get movie studios interested in his technique, and in December 1918, he wrote a letter to Charlie Chaplin. It reads a little bit like an awkward, desperate introductory email that I might write, only he uses less exclamation points. Quote, I have just returned from Europe. On my arrival, I heard that you have started a new moving pictures studio on your own, for which I am very pleased to congratulate you as a wonder artist, who by your cleverness and ingenuity, you have been able to conquer the whole world. I am myself was one of your admirers at the time you were engaged with Fred Carnot. Since that time, you have rapidly progressed with enormous success. So let me take the liberty to present to you my most hearty congratulations for the great achievement you have already done in the history of the cinematograph. Myself, I am an inventor. I was first working with Mr. T.A. Edison at his private laboratory. In 1894, I designed, built, and exhibited the first projecting moving pictures machine, the idoloscope. So I claim that I was the first one who brought out this great invention, which is not my last one. 
I am very pleased to say that my invention has been favorable to you, and my other one, if you are interested in it, would bring you an enormous fortune. He then goes on to explain the device. Chaplin was intrigued enough for Sidney to reply on his behalf, quote, Regarding your invention, it sounds very interesting to Mr. Chaplin, and he would be glad to receive further details. Laust seems to have never responded. And so the technology went unused for almost another decade. Major studios were making money hand over fist with their silent films and had no incentive to invest in expensive and unproven sound experiments. That all changed when an up-and-coming studio led by a group of risk-taking brothers was ready to make a splash. The year Chaplin was born, a Jewish couple named Benjamin and Pearl Wanzel were moving their young family from Poland to America. They had four children, Hirsch, Aaron, Shmuel, and Jacob. Shortly after arriving, their names were anglicized to Harry, Albert, Sam, and Jack, effectively known as the Warner Brothers. Their father was a poor shoemaker, and the brothers were eager entrepreneurs opening a grocery store, a bicycle shop, and a bowling alley. Everything changed in 1903 when Abe and Sam started exhibiting that groundbreaking film, The Great Train Robbery, at carnivals across Ohio and Pennsylvania. Harry sold the bike shop and used the money to purchase a building in Newcastle, Pennsylvania, where they opened their first Nickelodeon, The Cascade. Their theater business slowly grew until they opened their own Warner Features Company, and in 1918, they opened a studio in Hollywood. However, they were always second fiddle to the bigger studios and facing resistance from anti-Semitic bankers who refused to give them loans. They found some success in the mid-1920s with films starring a trained German shepherd named Rin Tin Tin, but when a failed radio station investment went belly up, the Warners were saddled with debt and facing a massive loss. Sam had long been an advocate for experimenting with synchronized sound, but older brother Harry repeatedly overruled him. But now, with the family business on the ropes, they needed to do something. Harry conceded, as long as the sound was used for background music purposes only. Harry went to Western Electric's Bell Laboratories in New York and was impressed with their gramophone disc syncing system. He made sure to have his wife wear a gold cross necklace to assuage the Protestant company owners. Together, they established a partnership, the Vitaphone Company. In August 1926, Vitaphone premiered a program of sound-synchronized shorts before the John Barrymore feature film, Don Juan. The experiment was successful, the sound was synced correctly, and Don Juan proved to be a pretty good box office draw. Seeing that this new invention would revolutionize the industry, Chaplin jumped at the opportunity to get in early. Only, it was the other Chaplin. After years of stress and frustration over his brother's constant personal and professional scandals, Sidney Chaplin wanted to strike out on his own. He left Charlie and got a job starring in the Warner Brothers' second sound film, The Better Ole, in which he speaks what many believe to be the first word of dialogue in Hollywood history, coffee. That's it. It's just coffee. Sidney leveraged this film into a contract with British International Pictures and returned to live in London. But after he was accused of sexually harassing actress Molly Wright, he and his wife left England to live in the south of France. 
Warner Brothers' early sound experiments were only modestly successful, but they caught the attention of the big five studios. First National, Paramount, MGM, Universal, and Producers Distributing elbowed their way into the Warner's previously exclusive deal with Vitaphone. Other studios began experimenting with sound effects, such as the F.W. Murnau masterpiece, Sunrise, A Song of Two Humans, which was just ranked 11th on the new Sight and Sound 100 Greatest Films of All Time poll, and you can listen to our sister podcast, Seen and Heard, for a fantastic episode about that film. Facing increased pressure and criticism from the other studios, Sam convinced Harry to take the next step. The Jazz Singer was a Warner Brothers production starring popular minstrel singer Al Jolson in blackface, which we should note was the most popular form of live entertainment at the time. The film was a bit awkward. The movie cameras they used back then were really loud and had to be enclosed in giant soundproofing boxes, which prevented any variation to the frame rate and any camera movement. This meant the films were filled with a lot of static, non-dynamic shots. Furthermore, it only featured small bits of Jolson singing along with a few lines of spoken dialogue. However, when Jolson improvised his famous stage line, Wait a minute, wait a minute, you ain't heard nothing yet. Wait a minute, I tell you, you ain't heard nothing. You want to hear Toot Toot Tootsie? All right, hold on, hold on. Lou, listen, play Toot Toot Tootsie, three chorus, you understand? And the third chorus, I whistle. Now give it to him hard and heavy. Go right ahead. Motion pictures changed overnight. The jazz singer became a national sensation. It caught everybody by surprise. Most people assumed that sound pictures would take decades to catch on. Instead, it all happened in an instant. But in a tragic twist, Sam Warner, the man who made this all possible, never got to see it. He died the night before the jazz singer premiered. In fact, none of the Warners were at the premiere. They were all at Sam's funeral. They didn't get to see their incredible Hail Mary come true. Sam's death led to youngest brother Jack being promoted to the sole head of production. Sam had always been Jack's favorite brother, and Jack went all in on the sound revolution. By the time Warner Brothers released Lights of New York, the first feature film to have dialogue throughout, they were a top studio. United Artists tried to present a united front. Mary Pickford, Doug Fairbanks, D.W. Griffith, Norma Talmadge, Gloria Swanson, John Barrymore, and Charlie Chaplin participated in a radio show to preview their hitherto unheard speaking voices. Chaplin managed only a few small jokes and later claimed to have Mike fright. The recording was played at theaters on other brand new sound systems but was despised by audiences. By the end of 1929, over 8,000 theaters had been wired with expensive disc or optical sound systems. And think about how serendipitous this is. Had they not done so, the stock market crash of late October 1929 that triggered the Great Depression could very well have set back sound films for another decade. Instead, talkies became the escapist entertainment of choice. To put it into perspective, in the year 1926, the last year of totally silent films, 50 million people a week went to the movies. In 1930, paid admissions soared to over 90 million a week. Chaplin was in denial. 
In early 1929, reporter Gladys Hall asked him what he thought of the talkies. He said, quote, I loathe them. They are spoiling the oldest art in the world, the art of pantomime. They are ruining the great beauty of silence. Al Jolson clapped back, quote, I was at a party the other night, and from 8.30 till around 5 a.m., Charlie never stopped talking and singing. If Charlie wants to keep what he calls the great beauty of silence, let him go lock himself in a room and become a nun's brother or something. He followed up this Twitter-worthy slight with a brilliant observation about Chaplin. Quote, He's afraid he talks too nice to fit in with the characterization he had built up on the screen. It's true, Chaplin had a fraught relationship with his own voice, working so hard to stamp out any remnant of a Cockney accent, reading and rehearsing ridiculous new vocab words before every social engagement, facing the proposition that the tramp, a character of low social status, would have to talk, triggered in Chaplin the imposter syndrome that had haunted him since he was a child. Many of his comedy colleagues, like Stan Laurel and Buster Keaton, jumped into the talkies without hesitation. But many found the transition difficult. Doug Fairbanks and Mary Pickford made their talking debut in 1929 with a version of Shakespeare's The Taming of the Shrew. It was panned by critics and signaled the end of their reign at the top of Hollywood. As late as 1931, Chaplin would still be saying, quote, I'll give the talkies three years, that's all. But can you blame him? He had elevated silent pantomime to unimaginable artistic and commercial heights. It was his lack of language that made his acting a true universal phenomenon. It superseded any race, region, or tongue. To see his art become instantly disposable must have been a crushing blow. Douglas Fairbanks Jr. remembers Chaplin coming over to sit with his father, and the two of them discussed their imminent retirement. Charlie was now 39 years old, twice divorced with two kids. His hair had gone gray and had to be dyed. After a decade of indulgence in which his manic depressive tendencies were given full reign over his personal and professional life, Chaplin was tired. Having always assumed that he would one day go insane like his mother, he began to take his mental health a bit more seriously by avoiding overexcitement. He painted his bedroom stark white and removed all decorations save for a twin bed, a small dresser, and a threadbare rug. Georgia Hale introduced him to the game of tennis, and Chaplin quickly became a full-on enthusiast, installing courts at his house and playing with Georgia, Doug, and Mary whenever he could. He began spending even more time walking around the poorer neighborhoods of Los Angeles. He claimed he was looking for characters, but it could just be that some part of him felt more comfortable as a lonely boy wandering in the slums. With his assistant, Harry Crocker, he began playing around with an idea. What if he was a struggling clown who was going blind? But to conceal this fact from his frail daughter, he would pretend that his errors and stumbles were done for fun. Although he later abandoned this blind clown idea as being too sentimental, he kept toying with the notion of blindness. What if he fell in love with a blind girl who mistook the lowly tramp for a rich man? In the summer of 1929, shortly after the release of Lights of New York all but put an end to the silent era, Hannah Chaplin was taken to Glendale Hospital with an infected gallbladder. Chaplin visited her every day in the hospital. Nurses reported hearing the two of them laughing and singing together. When she fell into a coma, Chaplin was advised not to see her, but he went straight to the hospital. The woman, 
once known as the promising music hall singer Lily Harley, briefly regained consciousness and took her son by the hand. When he reassured her that she would get well, she responded, perhaps, and then fell unconscious. She died the next day. Her simple gravestone sits dwarfed by Marion Davies' mammoth mausoleum and just down the row from Henry Pathé Lerman and his doomed girlfriend, Virginia Rappay. Once he returned to work, Chaplin was unexpectedly seized with an idea for the ending of his new film. He wrote a note that said, quote, Eventually she is cured, and Charlie finds her in Little Shop. As she laughs at him, Charlie does not dare disclose identity. Girl finally recognizes him, takes him by the hand, leads him into shop. Never before had he been so certain of a story's final image, but it was with this vision that he set out in creating what many consider his greatest masterpiece, City Lights. It took him many more months to work out the plot, later describing the process like being in a labyrinth. Having never explored the issue of race in his films, Chaplin for a long time toyed with the idea of having the tramp know a young black newsboy. However, eventually this storyline was cut. In the end, he settled on this as a plot. The tramp, struggling to survive in a large, unforgiving urban city, meets a fellow street urchin, a blind flower girl, who mistakes him for a rich man. Later, he saves a drunken millionaire from suicide. Grateful, the millionaire treats the tramp to a life of luxury. But upon sobering up, the millionaire doesn't remember him and throws him out of the house. The tramp learns that the girl's sight can be cured if she goes to Vienna for an operation. He tries to earn money for the procedure, but when he chances upon the millionaire, once again in a state of drunken benevolence, the millionaire gives the tramp the money he needs. But later that night, the millionaire's house is burglarized, and upon waking, he blames the tramp for the theft and has him imprisoned. The tramp comes out of jail a broken man. The flower girl is cured with the money the tramp gave her, and now she has a flower shop of her own. She longs to meet the mysterious benefactor who gave her the gift of sight, believing he is rich and handsome. The tramp chances across her shop, and while gazing in the window, the girl approaches him to give him a coin out of pity. He tries to flee, too ashamed to speak to her, but when she touches his hand, she recognizes it. You? she asks. He nods. You can see now? With tears in her eyes, she says, Yes, I can see now. They stare at each other as the camera fades out. During development, Chaplin began hanging out with an Australian artist named Henry Clive, and he eventually decided that Clive would be perfect in the role of the millionaire. He ordered his set department to construct the cityscapes, which were a strange amalgamation of London, Los Angeles, Naples, Paris, Tangier, and the American Midwest. He began his search for his next leading lady. Chaplin auditioned many actresses for the role of the blind flower girl, but was unhappy with their depictions of blindness, saying, quote, They were offensive, repulsive, all turning their eyes up to show their whites. Virginia Cheryl was originally from a Chicago suburb. 
She had gone to L.A. in the summer of 1928 to recuperate from her recent divorce. She was 20 years old. She met Chaplin at a boxing match, and he invited her to screen test, noticing that she was naturally nearsighted and almost looked effortlessly blind in real life. She got the part. Although there was cordiality between them, Chaplin, perhaps in an attempt to spare himself another marriage, was careful to cast someone he was not actively pursuing. Cheryl would sardonically say, quote, I was too old. I was 20 and had been divorced. At some point, Chaplin resigned to the fact that this film would have synchronized sound, although he refused to go so far as to have any of the characters talk. Instead, there would be music and light sound effects only. Shooting began on New Year's Eve 1928 with a few establishing shots, as much of the story was still unwritten. And after a brief trip out to Hearst Castle, Chaplin returned to shoot the first meeting scene between the tramp and the flower girl. This scene would prove to be legendary in its length and difficulty. Virginia was a completely inexperienced actress. Although she tested well, Chaplin was very doubtful of her skills, and the pressure he felt from sound films and his perceived irrelevance led him to be even more demanding of himself and his co-stars. He would later admit, quote, It was not Virginia's fault, but partly my own, for I had worked myself into a neurotic state of wanting perfection. Virginia didn't help matters by repeatedly showing up to set hungover. After all, she came to L.A. to get a divorce, not make a serious piece of art. Adding to the pressure were several on-set visitors. The first was Ralph Barton, a playboy cartoonist and friend of Chaplin's, who insisted on documenting the production with a 16mm camera. The second was Czech writer Egon Kish, who had been brought to the studio by Upton Sinclair. Kish was an eccentric who loved to say ludicrous things to get a rise out of people. He frequently greeted women by saying, quote, Hello, my darling. Hello, my duck. Give me a hug and I'll give you a kiss. Classy. He was also a member of the Soviet-controlled propaganda organization Comintern and was most likely sent by Moscow to try to manipulate Chaplin into the communist fold. The Soviets wanted some of that Chaplin magic. Just as their films had started to get international acclaim, such as Sergei Eisenstein's Battleship Potomkin, the sound revolution made them irrelevant again. It took years longer for the centralized Soviet government to update and rewire their studios and theaters. Now, it was finally time to shoot the scene where the tramp and the blind flower girl meet. It seems simple enough. The tramp was mistaken for a rich man, and the girl hands him a flower, saying the words, Flower, sir? First of all, Charlie had to figure out a silent way of explaining how the smelly tramp could be mistaken for a rich gentleman. He played around with ideas of having the rich man pull up in his car alongside the tramp, possibly even having the tramp pretend to be the rich man's chauffeur, but none of it worked. The entire plot hinged upon this case of mistaken identity, and Chaplin couldn't figure out a convincing way to do it. Adding to his frustration was Virginia's performance. Again, she's completely untrained as an actor. She's never so much as said a word in front of a camera. She didn't have the timing or dance-like quality that Chaplin wanted, like an untrained actor would. I don't know what he was thinking. He made her do the line, Flower, sir? Over and over and over again. From January 29th to February 14th, they shot the same scene. They returned February 20th and shot it again. And again, 
And again, finally on February 25th, Chaplin declared that he had food poisoning and couldn't come to work. Food poisoning then turned into the flu, and Chaplin avoided the studio and Virginia for the entire month of March. Decades later, Chaplin would recall to Life magazine writer Richard Merriman, quote, Everything I do is a dance. I think in terms of dance. She'd be doing something which wasn't right. Lines, a line, a contour hurts me if it's not right. And she'd say, flower, sir? And I'd say, no one says flower like that. She was an amateur. He returned April 1st and began reshooting the scene a third time. After 10 days, he threw up his hands and moved on. He shot the opening sequence where city officials unveil a new civic monument titled Peace and Prosperity, only to discover the tramps sleeping on their precious statue. Shooting was once again interrupted when L.A. authorities decided to widen La Brea Avenue, forcing the Chaplin studio to move all their buildings along La Brea 15 feet back. Chaplin decided to move the shoot over to the swimming pool, which was to become the set of the millionaire's suicide attempt. The first two days went fine with Henry Clive excelling in his role, but on the third day, when it came time for him to go into the water, Clive asked if they could just wait a little until the sun had warmed up the pool. Chaplin left the set in a huff, and Carlisle Robinson had to inform Clive that he was fired. Chaplin replaced him with a veteran out of the old biograph company, Harry Myers. Having starred in over 50 films, Myers had no trouble with a little cold water. Once they shot that scene, the building relocation and road construction brought production to a halt from mid-July to mid-August. He finally returned to shoot a solo gag that was in many ways the culmination of Chaplin's 15 years in film comedy. In the scene, the tramp crosses in front of a window of an art store and pauses to look at a nude statuette. He disguises his clear sexual arousal by pretending to be an art connoisseur. As he sizes up the artwork, he steps backward and forward, only he's not aware of a sidewalk elevator that is constantly moving up and down. Every time you think he's going to fall into the hole, the elevator arrives just at the moment he steps on it. When suddenly he becomes aware of the danger he's in, he yells down at a workman whose head emerges from the elevator hole. As the tramp yells, the elevator rises and rises, revealing the workman to be a towering giant. The tramp changes his tune, tips his hat, and scampers away. This harkens back to those early Chaplin shorts featuring gags around escalators and other common mechanical objects. Chaplin remained on edge throughout filming. One day, without any explanation, he telephoned studio manager Alf Reeves and refused to step foot in the studio as long as his young assistant Harry Crocker was there. Ever since the circus, Crocker had become Chaplin's closest confidant, and although years later they would reconcile, neither would ever reveal the cause of the sudden firing. In late October 1929, the stock market crashed. Millions of dollars in wealth was destroyed in an instant. The panic spread all the way across Hollywood as studios and studio heads found themselves with a serious lack of cash. Yet work at the Chaplin studio proceeded without incident. Months earlier, possibly moved by the growing unemployment he saw around the U.S., or possibly just because he needed liquidity in the wake of his divorce and tax bill, Chaplin had fortuitously sold all his stock holdings. In mid-November, Chaplin returned to working with Virginia Cheryl. Six months had passed since their last scene, 
and she had been required to report to the studio every day during that time, although she was never used. As Virginia later recalled, quote, I never liked Charlie, and he never liked me. The fact that she didn't really care about the work bothered Chaplin. As he later explained to Richard Merriman, quote, If I get an idea and someone tries to dampen my enthusiasm, then I'm lost. He started her off with some easy wide shots and then decided it was time to attempt the final scene. But something happened. Depending on who you ask, either Virginia tried to leave early for a hair appointment, or she returned late from a lunch break because the Chaplin studio had no commissary, a.k.a. Crafty, on set. Either way, Chaplin stormed off and once again had his press secretary, Carlisle Robinson, fire her. Georgia Hale, Chaplin's lover and co-star of The Gold Rush, was called in that same day for a screen test. Having not booked a part in over a year, she was thrilled to be on payroll. Quote, Oh, that's city lights. That's what I would have loved to do. And I had it, you know. We went to dinner, and he told me, you've got the part. But the rest of Chaplin's co-workers, fearing a repeat of the circus, were dismayed that he would replace his leading lady after almost a year of shooting. Carlisle Robinson in particular was against the idea, and having worked for Chaplin for over a decade, knew how to manipulate his boss. He told Chaplin that Georgia was planning to sue him if he didn't give her the part. Once the idea was planted into his head, Chaplin was quick to paranoia. When Charlie next saw Georgia, he was completely changed. As she recalls, quote, Then he told me what a terrible person I was, and he raved and raved and raved. He only calmed down when he realized I had no idea what he was talking about. Then he said, But I thought you were going to sue me. Oh, I wanted to do that part. I loved that part so. Chaplin then tested a 16-year-old blonde named Violet Krauth, working under the stage name Marilyn Morgan. He was thrilled with her screen test and ordered a contract to be written that day. But Alf Reeves and Carlisle Robinson, fearing what might happen with yet another teenage actress, told him that there were no typists working at the studio. The next morning, Chaplin's enthusiasm had passed, and Reeves informed the young girl that she would not be getting the part. She later changed her name to Marion Marsh and had a nice career, starring in Joseph von Sternberg's Crime and Punishment. In the week since she had been fired, Virginia had spent a lot of time with Chaplin's former lover, Marion Davies. When Chaplin begrudgingly asked Virginia to come back to work, Marion, possibly taking pleasure in hurting Charlie for all the pain he had caused her, instructed Cheryl to say that she would not return unless Chaplin doubled her salary. What's strange is that this had the opposite effect one might imagine. Chaplin respected her guts and tact. She returned to the studio, and after an hour-long conversation, Chaplin and Cheryl emerged all smiles. When they once again attempted the opening flower scene, suddenly everything clicked. First of all, Charlie figured out how the blind girl mistakes the tramp for a rich man. He turned to a visual gag from his old film, The Idle Class, which had a scene where the tramp evades police by ducking into the backseat of a rich man's automobile, only to emerge the other side, mistaken for a guest arriving at a costume party. Now he repeated this action, except, emerging from the automobile to evade police, the beautiful flower girl assumes that he's the car's owner. Now it's easy to shrug this off as a throwaway beat in a movie, but we really need to appreciate this. This simple story beat 
is the culmination of decades of work. Chaplin had long struggled with how to justify why any woman would be attracted to the tramp. Women would pity him, but they would never feel attracted to him. He solves this all by repackaging a choice that's both bold enough to capture an audience's attention, yet subtle enough to never make them doubt it. You suspend your disbelief completely through an intricately elegant piece of visual storytelling. That is pure artistry. Suddenly, Virginia could say her line with ease. Studio assistant Alistair Cook commented, quote, It flowed as easily as water over pebbles. In total, they had reshot the opening Flower Girl scene 342 times, which still holds the Guinness Book of World Records for the most retakes of a single movie scene. This was a turning point for the film. Although shooting continued for another nine months, Chaplin's mood relaxed. There were no more fights, no more firings. He spent the beginning of 1930 shooting out all the sequences at the millionaire's house. He hired Albert Austin to play one of the burglars, which would be the last time an old Carnot colleague would appear in a Chaplin film. In May, he shot the prize fight scene, hiring former Keystone actor Hank Mann as his giant opponent. Chaplin had featured boxing in many of his early shorts, and while he had hired only a dozen extras for The Champion, he now used over a hundred extras to fill the audience for City Lights. Virginia Cheryl recalled, quote, The filming of the boxing match was the only social life we had at the studio. Charlie encouraged his friends in town to come and watch. Everybody loved boxing in Hollywood in those days, and Charlie was so funny in the ring. The boxing scene became sort of a party at the studio. Charlie loved every minute of it. Rehearsed in four days and shot in six, this fight scene is the epitome of Chaplin's dance-like comedy as he deftly bobs and weaves away from his lumbering opponent's blows. It's also worth noting that Chaplin once again puts a lot of homosexual innuendo into this film. In the locker room before the fight, the tramp attempts to soften up his opponent by flirting with him, causing his opponent to go behind a curtain to change his shorts. But that isn't the only reference. After a long night of drinking, the millionaire and the tramp wake up in bed together, clearly afraid of what might have happened in the night before. The millionaire at one point kisses the tramp, to which the tramp mimes, settle down. And then again, when the millionaire gives the tramp money, the tramp kisses him. None of this would have happened in any other studio film of the era. As spring turned to summer, Chaplin shot the scene with two insolent newsboys who mock the lowly tramp. One of them was played by Robert Parrish, who would go on to be a successful director and Academy Award-winning editor. He recalled about Chaplin, quote, He became a kind of dervish, playing all the parts, using all the props. Austin, the other boy actor, and I and Miss Cheryl watched while Charlie did his show. Finally, he had it all worked out and reluctantly gave us back our parts. I felt that he would much rather have played all of them himself. In September, Charlie reshot the final scene, that glorious vision that had set off the entire story in his imagination. He spent six days shooting the general action, and on September 22nd, shot the final close-ups that had given him so much trouble before. He and Virginia worked from 2.30 p.m. to 5.30 p.m., shooting 17 takes. In that time, one of the most magical, most touching, most effervescent moments in all of cinema was captured. Anyone who has seen the film understands the undeniable power of those final 
shots. Chaplin was aware in the moment that he had done something special. Quote, I was looking more at her and interested in her, and I detached myself in a way that gives a beautiful sensation. I'm not acting. Almost apologetic, standing outside myself and looking, studying her reactions and being slightly embarrassed about it, and it came off. It's a beautiful scene, and because it isn't overacted. James Agee, the influential film critic for Time magazine, later wrote, quote, It is enough to shrivel the heart to see, and it is the greatest piece of acting and the highest moment in movies. For the final scene of filming, Chaplin devised some ingenious slapstick with his old Carno buddy, Albert Austin. Once again, hearkening back to the old shorts, he came up with a scene in which the tramp was trying to earn money with Austin as a street sweeper. Shot on the corner of Vine and Melrose, the scene features Charlie washing his face while Austin eats out of a lunch pail. Austin's cheese is replaced by Chaplin's soap bar, causing Chaplin to use the former to clean his face, and Austin to take a hearty bite out of a soap sandwich. Cutting and titling took place from mid-October to mid-December. By this time, silent films were a thing of the past. Some of the titles that had already been released included All Quiet on the Western Front, The Blue Angel, and Broadway Melody. It was now standard Hollywood practice that once a director completed their film, they handed them over to musical arrangers who had descended on Hollywood since the sound revolution. Many of these arrangers were former directors of cinema orchestras whose jobs had been taken by the new advances in sound technology. It surprised everyone when Chaplin announced he would write his own score. He had always been an amateur musician, having taught himself violin and cello, played left-handed, upside-down like Jimi Hendrix, but people were amazed at this guy. I mean, was there nothing he couldn't do? For Chaplin, I don't believe this was some kind of ego-filled choice. At his best, he had always been driven by a childish curiosity, and somewhat secure in his belief that he had mastered the art of performance and filmmaking, he needed a new challenge. Chaplin described his composition technique, quote, I didn't really write it down. I la-la'd it to Arthur Johnston, who wrote it down, and I wish you would give him the credit, because he did a very good job. It is all simple music, you know, in keeping with my character. Chaplin's simple music score took six weeks to write and included almost 100 music cues. The themes ranged from trumpet fanfares, opera, burlesque, Al Jolson-style vaudeville numbers, jazz motifs for a nightclub, and a comic tango for the boxing match. Chaplin also used certain musical phrases from other works, including Padilla's La Violetera and Rimsky-Korsakov's Scheherazade. Chaplin hated what he called Mickey Mousing, the technique of using sound effects and rim shots to signal gags. Instead, he wanted the music to provide counterpoint to whatever was happening on the screen. In total, the production took 22 months, with 179 days of shooting. It cost over $1.5 million in Chaplin's money. A preview was held at the Tower Theater in L.A., and it was a huge disappointment. The audience was only half full, and having been told they were about to see an adventure drama, they were mostly apathetic. It was 1931, and this was set to be a groundbreaking year for Hollywood movies. Joan Crawford just had a hit with the musical Dance Fools Dance, Greta Garbo was preparing to release Susan Lennox, Her Rise and Fall. Later, there would be James Cagney's The Public Enemy, Betty Davis's Bad Sister, Boris Karloff's Frankenstein, and the new comedy kids on the block, 
The Marx Brothers had just released Monkey Business. Audiences were dazzled by these new films. They were ironic, realistic, hard-boiled, and horrifying. What they weren't was sentimental. An anxious chaplain braced himself for a disastrous premiere. It was to be held not in Hollywood, but at the brand new Los Angeles Theater in downtown L.A. This was the last of the great pre-Depression movie palaces. It was a lavish 2,000-seat theater featuring a grand central staircase and an opulent interior modeled on the Hall of Mirrors in Versailles. It included a restaurant and a ballroom. Chaplin himself had helped fund the final stages of construction so that it would be ready for the premiere. On January 30th, 1931, everyone in Hollywood turned out for this strange blast from the silent past. The DeMilles, the Shanks, the Barrymores, the Warners, also in attendance were a long line of former lovers, including Marion Davies, Claire Windsor, Myrna Kennedy, and Georgia Hale. Chaplin's personal guests were the Einsteins. As they rode to the theater, Chaplin was freaking out. He was ashen-faced and beside himself, telling Georgia Hale, I don't think they're going to like it. I just feel it. As they pulled into downtown L.A., they were met with an astonishing sight. A crowd of about 25,000 people had showed up, trying to catch a glimpse of the stars. Police struggled to get control of the situation. Traffic was halted. Department store windows were broken. At one point, the cops threatened to deploy tear gas. Once the guests were safely inside, the house lights went down. The screen began to flicker, and Chaplin held his breath. From the first shot, the audience was delighted. Uproarious laughter filled the massive theater, each scene getting a bigger and bigger laugh. Everything was going perfectly, when suddenly, at the end of the third reel, the film was stopped. The house lights turned on, and a bland voice announced that the show would be momentarily paused so the audience could admire the beautiful features of the new theater. Chaplin charged out of his box and yelled at the management to turn the projector back on. Luckily, the interruption did nothing to dampen the crowd's enthusiasm. As the final scene played and the music swelled, Chaplin looked over to see Albert Einstein wiping tears from his eyes. Critics wrote, quote, Nobody in the world but Charlie Chaplin could have done it. He is the only person that has that peculiar something called audience appeal in sufficient quantity to defy the popular penchant for pictures that talk. His confidence bolstered, Chaplin transformed into the shrewd businessman. He demanded 50% of the gross from UA and insisted ticket prices be raised to an unheard of buck 50, which is about $20 in today's money. The sales team at UA, including Chaplin's personal appointee, Arthur Kelly, almost laughed in his face. How could he possibly think that this would work for a film that was already outdated? Chaplin doubled down. Shunning UA, he decided to roadshow the film himself, taking the film to New York City and personally paying for full-page ads in the local papers. In its first 12 weeks at the George M. Cohen Theater on Broadway, City Lights grossed $400,000. United Artists quickly changed their tune, and the film went on to make $5 million in profit. Chaplin had done the impossible. He made a hit silent film three years after the sound revolution, while his former contemporaries, Buster Keaton and Harold Lloyd, who had enthusiastically jumped into sound films, saw their careers disintegrate. 
Such is the power of City Lights. When it was reissued in 1950, Life magazine named it one of the best films of the year. It is currently ranked 36 in the 2022 Sight and Sound 100 Greatest Films of All Time poll, the highest ranking of any Chaplin film. Now, as I mentioned before, Chaplin's social life had calmed down a bit. However, I would not be a good cinephile if I didn't go into some stories of his friends during this time in production. Soviet filmmakers Sergei Eisenstein and Grigory Alexandrov were in America. They came, supposedly, under the belief that Doug Fairbanks would help them make a film with United Artists, but when it became clear that UA didn't really have a plan for the Soviet filmmakers, they signed a short contract with Paramount. In truth, their trip was a bit more confusing. They had been sent by the Soviet government to secretly steal American sound techniques. On their tour of the Paramount lot, Eisenstein tore off chunks of soundproofing foam to later be studied by Soviet engineers. Of course, on the other hand, they were just eager to escape the dangerous conditions under new Soviet leader Joseph Stalin. Chaplin was cautious about welcoming the two filmmakers to California. Maybe he was wary after so many communists had constantly been hitting him up for money and favors. But eventually mutual friends brought Eisenstein and Alexandrov to Chaplin's home, where they soon joined in the tennis party. I wish I could have seen this. The pear-shaped Eisenstein, quite unaccustomed to the Beverly Hills lifestyle, refused to wear tennis whites, instead preferring to play in a pair of bright red suspenders with a belt. Eisenstein hilariously wrote of his time in Southern California, quote, Except for Chaplin, Sternberg, and Lubitsch, this latter makes up for his faults by great personal charm. Everyone in Hollywood is stupid or of mediocre interest. We often go to Chaplin's house to play tennis. He's really nice and extremely unhappy. Eisenstein's trip to Hollywood ended as right-wing conservatives pressured Paramount to drop the director. But not wanting to return to Moscow, Eisenstein convinced Upton Sinclair to give him money to go to Mexico, where he wanted to make a film about the Mexican Revolution. Soviet authorities feared Eisenstein was defecting and pressured various sympathizers and allies to bring him back to Russia. Eisenstein shot over 234,000 feet of film, but also sexually pursued underage boys with abandon. Sinclair tried to get Chaplin to go down to Mexico and persuade Eisenstein to change his behavior. Chaplin said no way, and Sinclair, who had now run out of money himself, pulled the rug out from Eisenstein before he could finish his film, K-Viva Mexico. Forced to return to Russia, Eisenstein was punished and not allowed to shoot another film until 1938. Sinclair, meanwhile, took control of the footage and gave it to director Sol Lesser, who turned it into the 1933 film Thunder Over Mexico. For this, Sinclair was vilified by communists worldwide as a bourgeois pig who had destroyed a revolutionary masterpiece out of greed. Eisenstein, possibly trying to save face, would later criticize all of Hollywood, calling Chaplin, quote, His Majesty the Baby. But for Chaplin and Sinclair, who were intellectual socialists, the affair was an eye-opening lesson to the dangerous realities of working with the Soviets. Now, before he left town, Eisenstein would invite two young Spaniards over to the Chaplin house, Eduardo Ugarte and Louis Bunuel, who was already famous for his surrealist short films such as Uchen Andalou. Once again, check out Seen and Heard for a fantastic episode talking about this groundbreaking short film. Boonwell would describe his time hanging out with Chaplin at length in his later autobiography, 
including a colorful detail when Chaplin hired three sex workers for Bunuel and Ugarte, but when, quote, the ravishing young women arrived from Pasadena, they immediately got into a tremendous argument over which one was going to get Chaplin, and in the end, all three left in a huff. For Christmas that year, Chaplin, Georgia, Bunuel, and Ugarte attended a dinner party where Bunuel decided to stage a surrealist incident. Midway through the dinner, he, Ugarte, and another Spanish actor jumped up from the dinner table and attacked the Christmas tree, tearing it apart limb from limb, which he said resulted, quote, in a great many scratches and pathetic results. The guests were shocked, but Chaplin was amused. He invited the Spaniards to his New Year's party, but told them, quote, since you're so fond of tearing up trees, why don't you get it over with now so we won't be disturbing dinner? Bunuel replied, I really have nothing against trees. Chaplin's daughter Geraldine would recall that in his later years, Charlie would frighten the kids with stories of the surrealist Bunuel and his crazy films. The day after the L.A. premiere of City Lights, Chaplin left town. His plan was to attend the New York and London premieres, but as he would later write, quote, The disillusion of love, fame, and fortune left me feeling somewhat apathetic. There was nothing to turn to outside of my work, and that, after 20 years, was becoming irksome. In the grips of a midlife crisis, he would not return to California for almost a year and a half. Resistant to any type of voice work, he turned down an offer of $670,000 for 26 weekly radio broadcasts, the highest fee that had ever been offered to a broadcaster at that time. He spent his time in New York shuffling between social engagements. He brought city lights to Sing Sing Prison and was touched by the inmates' enthusiasm. At this time, high-profile kidnappings of the rich and famous were filling newspapers. Carlisle Robinson received a tip which made him fear Chaplin might be targeted, and although nothing came of it, he arranged to have Charlie followed by two burly detectives. Chaplin was struck by the depressing tone that had come over New York in the wake of the stock market crash. In recent years, Chaplin had become more and more interested in economics. He read Major H. Douglas's book, Social Credit, which was an economic theory that governments could avoid economic downturns and unemployment by compensating consumers and producers with free money. Honestly, I don't quite understand it. It sounds a bit like universal basic income to me. If someone knows more about this, please email me behind the slate pod at gmail.com. I really would love an explanation. Chaplin had toured the Ford factory in Detroit back in the early 1920s, and he was becoming increasingly concerned about automation taking jobs away from real people. In an interview, he stated, quote, If America is to have sustained prosperity, the American people must have sustained ability to spend. Unemployment is the vital question, not prohibition. Machinery should benefit mankind. It should not spell tragedy and throw it out of work. Labor-saving devices and other modern inventions were not really made for profit, but to help humanity in the pursuit of happiness. If there is to be any hope for the future, it seems to me that there must be some radical change to cope with these conditions. I think there is something wrong with our methods of production and systems of credit. Chaplin had gone so far as to begin developing his own economic solution based around the creation of an international currency. This was a marked change from his earlier interest in the socialist utopia promised by the Soviet Union. It's possible he had become concerned about Joseph Stalin's paranoid dictatorship in the early 1930s, or that he had just become annoyed with the socialist left constantly hitting him up for cash. He said in his 1931 interview, quote, It is so much better to go with the change, I think, than to go against. 
As I grow older, I find it is better to go with the tide. As he prepared to leave the States, he was eager to discuss his ideas with the preeminent men and women of Europe. Fifteen minutes before setting off to London with Carlisle Robinson and Taraichi Kono, Chaplin impulsively invited Ralph Barton, who had been suffering from acute depression after being left by his wife, actress Carlotta Monterey, who was now living with the playwright Eugene O'Neill in France. The group arrived in Paddington to as much fanfare as he had experienced almost ten years before. After a few days in London, Chaplin finally got the nerve to do something he hadn't done during his 1921 trip. He returned to the Hanwell School, the orphanage he had spent 18 months in as a boy. He arrived unannounced, and soon the students were thrown into a frenzy. Quote, he entered the dining hall where 400 boys and girls cheered their heads off. He went to raise his hat, and it jumped magically in the air. He swung his cane and hit himself in the leg. He turned out his feet and hopped along inimitably. Chaplin told his friend Thomas Burke that it was the greatest emotional experience of his life. Quote, You feel like the dead returning to earth. When I got there, I knew it was what I'd been wanting for years. Everything had been leading up to it, and I was ripe for it. One can think that one was happy once, or intensely miserable. Perhaps it's the same thing as long as it's intense. And anyway, I like being morbid. It does me good. I thrive on it. Chaplin promised to return and bring them a cinema projector as a gift. Carlisle Robinson procured the equipment from UA, along with a gift bag for every child. But on the day of the arranged return, Chaplin decided to have lunch with Lady Astor instead, leaving Robinson and Kono to deliver the gifts to a huge, disappointed crowd of kids. The City Lights premiere went off with a bang, followed by an after-party that was the London social event of the season. Chaplin fell into his usual playboy carousing, dancing with women and socializing with the rich and famous. He spent time with Lady Astor and George Bernard Shaw. He stayed a weekend at Winston Churchill's estate. Churchill and Chaplin had met during Winston's 1929 tour of America. They had hit it off at one of Marion Davies' famous parties, staying up till three in the morning, where Churchill encouraged him to play Napoleon, promising to write the script himself. No doubt Winnie was a few drinks deep on that one. It brings me so much joy to think of Chaplin, the master of silent communication, to have found so much in common with Churchill, possibly the greatest living craftsman of the English language, when one considers the depth of both his writing and oratory. Now, Churchill and Chaplin were joined by economist John Maynard Keynes, and the three debated economic policy for days on end, during which Chaplin argued to shrink the government, abolish the gold standard, shorten working hours, establish global currency, institute a minimum wage, all while defending Gandhi's campaign to end British rule in India, to which Winston replied, You should run for Parliament. Honestly, if I had a time machine, this might be one of the places I would travel back to, just, just to have a good time. Churchill and Chaplin were, by all accounts, some of history's greatest all-time dinner guests. I'm sure these hangouts were hilarious. Another one of my favorite anecdotes comes when Chaplin said he wanted to make a film where he played Jesus Christ, and Churchill responded with, Have you cleared the rights? Churchill was so enamored with Chaplin that he wrote an article in 1935 extolling the value of Chaplin as the patron saint of silent pantomime, titled Everybody's Language. And as I've already done, this is, of course, a further excuse to, in the style of Tom Holland and Dominic Sandbrook from the Rest is History podcast, indulge in my Churchill impersonation. 
Destiny shifts us here and there upon the checkerboard of life, and we know not the purpose behind the moves. His father's death brought a safe, comfortable world crashing about Charlie Chaplin's head, and plunged his mother, his brother, and himself into poverty. But poverty is not a life sentence. It is a challenge. To some it is more. It is an opportunity. It was so to this child of the theatre. In the kaleidoscopic life of London's mean streets, he found tragedy and comedy, and learned that their springs lie side by side. Oh, and I'm not done. He then compares Chaplin to Dickens. Okay, here we go. Between these two, there is, I think, an essential similarity. Both knew hardness in childhood. Both made their misfortunes stepping stones to success. They developed along different lines, chose different mediums of expression, but both quarried in the same rich mine of common life and found their treasure of laughter and drama for the delight of all mankind. Genius is essentially a hardy plant. It thrives in the east wind. It withers in a hothouse. That is, I believe, true in every walk of life. Winston Churchill, everybody. Winston Churchill. Thank you. Thank you. Um, Yes. Moving on. Chaplin then went to Checkers to meet with brand new Labor Prime Minister Ramsay MacDonald. But while walking around the property, they came across a poor family picnicking on the grounds, and MacDonald brusquely asked them to leave. Chaplin was so shocked and offended that he decided then and there that the prime minister had turned against the people he was supposed to represent. MacDonald had another motive for the meeting. He was hoping to boost national GDP by luring Chaplin back to England to make films. And to earn favor with both Chaplin and his party, he recommended Chaplin for knighthood to King George V. Meanwhile, Ralph Barton was falling apart. He locked himself in his hotel room and refused to leave. Carlisle Robinson was shocked to find him fingering a revolver and feared Barton would take his life and Chaplin's too. Barton was sent back to New York with 25 pounds for his trouble, and three weeks later, he committed suicide in his apartment. Chaplin was too busy to notice. He got himself embroiled in a stupid political fight when he attended a dinner hosted by Lady Astor filled with Tory aristocrats. This dinner overshadowed another dinner thrown by Ramsay MacDonald filled with Labour Party members that was supposed to take place later that week. This all gets made worse when Carlisle Robinson, concerned that Chaplin might marry a brunette dancer named Sari Maritza that he was sleeping with, pushes him to leave the country as soon as possible. So then Chaplin moves up his departure date, but he's too afraid to call Ramsay MacDonald and tell him that he's canceling, and he says he's going to write a letter, but he never does. And then on the night he's supposed to leave for Berlin, Sari shows up and warns him not to risk crossing the channel in bad weather. So Chaplin doesn't leave and instead spends the night with the brunette dancer while Ramsay MacDonald and the rest of his ministers wait angrily at dinner, having never been informed of Chaplin's absence. To justify all this, Robinson forces Chaplin on an inexplicable train to Liverpool, and while he did briefly visit Shakespeare's home at Stratford-upon-Avon, the whole trip to the Midlands was a ludicrous excuse to avoid the dinner. (sighs) Finally, finally, Chaplin leaves for Germany. While he was an unknown commodity in 1921, Germany now caught Chaplinitis and saw him as a hero fighting for social justice. The truth is, they needed a hero. 
In the aftermath of World War I, Germany had descended into chaos. Political violence was a daily occurrence, and out-of-control inflation meant a loaf of bread cost a billion marks. Little men in bowler hats were frequent protagonists in German novels. Old Chaplin shorts were packing out cinemas. The cover of a 1929 political magazine featured Chaplin, Upton Sinclair, and Egon Kish with the caption, quote, Three people pushing in the same direction. In Berlin, Charlie was greeted with massive crowds, and thanks to the sound revolution, we can actually hear what it was like. Weimar Germany was in the grips of a financial and political crisis. The massive war reparations demanded by the Treaty of Versailles destroyed the German economy. It was impossible for politicians to get control of the poverty and skyrocketing inflation. Fueled by resentment and desperation, both communists and the upstart Nazi party were trying to destroy the government. A group representing the socialist unemployed film workers of Germany threatened to start a riot if Chaplin did not meet with their delegation. Chaplin agreed, leading to newspaper articles that Chaplin was sympathetic to all German communists. In response, the Nazis declared Chaplin a, quote, anti-German warmongerer and a, quote, American film Jew. They chided the German people for celebrating him, using that very footage in a later propaganda film. His presence caused such political turmoil, Chaplin was asked to leave Berlin a day early. He then went on to Vienna. Budapest, Venice, and Paris. In France, Chaplin was met with even more controversy when French critics accused City Lights of plagiarism for its similarity to a French play called Le Plus Beau You du Monde by Jean Sarmon. The major similarity was that the French play involves a girl who has lost her eyesight. And it's true that Sarmon's play was translated into an English screenplay, although no Hollywood studios bought the rights. Still, Chaplin's denial that he had ever heard of John Sarmont evoked quite a few eye rolls. Furthermore, Chaplin had used the song La Viola Terra as the theme for City Lights, and while United Artists had cleared the rights for the song, they had kept the title card Music Composed by Charles Chaplin. See, back when movies were accompanied by live music, music publishers gave no thought to screen credits. But now, with recorded sound... Mistakes like this could have a big effect. It elicited boos and hisses from French audiences who were primed to see Chaplin as a plagiarizer. He then went on to have an awkward meeting with King Albert of Belgium, where he was seated in a very low chair while the tall king was given a much higher one, a visual gag he would later use in The Great Dictator. He joined the Duke and Duchess of Westminster at their Normandy house for a boar hunt, where he was annoyed to have been lended hunting clothes much too large for his slight frame. He then received devastating news. Queen Mary was denying his knighthood over his refusal to serve in World War I. Frustrated and depressed, Chaplin went to the south of France where Sidney had been living for six months. He took up residence at the Majestic Hotel in Nice. It was here that he met a mysterious and strange Czechoslovakian beauty queen who gave the name May Reeves. She became Chaplin's lover and companion for 11 months. Fearing a future marriage, Sidney and Carlisle Robinson disapproved, going so far as to force May to take a separate boat on a trip to Algiers. In an attempt to 
In an attempt to end the relationship, Sidney told Carlisle to tell Charlie that he had had an affair with May first. Carlisle did what he was told, and while the information had its desired effect, it proved to be the final straw for Carlisle. Chaplin sent him back to New York, and within a few weeks, Carlisle Robinson received a letter informing him that after 14 years of loyal service, he would no longer be needed at the Chaplin studio. Chaplin then received an invitation to take part in the Royal Variety Performance in London the following month. Now, it's entirely possible that because Carlisle Robinson was dismissed, he overlooked the invitation. The press claimed that his refusal was an insult to the king. In response, Chaplin sent a $1,000 donation with the biting comment that it represented his total earnings in his last two years' residence in England. He then made the mistake of spilling his indignation to a reporter, saying, quote, They say I have a duty to England. I wondered just what that duty is. No one wanted me or cared for me in England 17 years ago. I had to go to America for my chance. Patriotism is the greatest insanity the world has ever suffered. I have been all over Europe in the past few months. Patriotism is rampant everywhere, and the result is going to be another war. I hope they send the old men to the front this time, for it is the old men who are the real criminals in Europe today. To our ears, Chaplin sounds prophetic, but back then, he was widely criticized. In late September, having briefly returned to London, Chaplin walked to a modest house on East India Dock Road. He was led inside and asked to wait in a room upstairs. After 30 minutes, Gandhi, dressed in a simple homespun dhoti or shawl, entered. Chaplin had requested the meeting, and although Gandhi had never heard of Chaplin, he agreed, having been told that Chaplin was someone who made a million people laugh. Chaplin was intrigued by Gandhi's spinning wheel movement, in which he encouraged Indians to spin their own clothes to rebel against the colonial British government's exploitative industrialized textile mills. Chaplin eagerly peppered Gandhi with questions about economic revolution, expressing his support for a free and independent India. When he asked the Mahatma if he was against machinery, Gandhi replied, quote, Machinery in the past has made us depend on England, and the only way we can rid ourselves of that dependence is to boycott all goods made by this machinery. After their discussion, Chaplin stayed at Gandhi's invitation to watch them in prayer. Chaplin next went to Switzerland, where he and May Reeves joined Douglas Fairbanks on a ski trip. He then passed briefly through Vienna, where a planned meeting with Sigmund Freud was sadly canceled, but Chaplin's wanderlust was not satisfied. He decided to prolong his holiday even further with a visit to Japan and invited Sidney to join him. At the port in Naples, Chaplin said goodbye to May Reeves. He said as the boat pulled away, he watched her on the dock, smiling and imitating his tramp walk. Sidney had always been suspicious of May, going so far as to believe she might have been a Soviet spy. When she published a book titled The Intimate Charlie Chaplin in 1935, his fears seemed all but confirmed. However, her memoirs were nothing more than the touching recollections of a young woman in love. The brothers traveled to Singapore and Bali before arriving in Kobe and then Tokyo to the usual huge crowds. As official guests of the Japanese government, they immersed themselves in every aspect of Japanese culture. However, Taraichi Kono back in his homeland for the first time since the age of 18, was not so happy. Ever since they arrived, he had been increasingly nervous, and strange things kept happening, such as when the chauffeur of their limousine unexpectedly stopped the car near the emperor's palace. 
After casting an anxious glance out the back window to several cars that were following them, Kono told Chaplin to step out of the vehicle and bow towards the palace. The next day, Sidney woke up to discover his bags had been searched and his papers rifled through. A government agent then appeared and told the brothers that if they wanted to go anywhere, they must inform him via Kono of their plans. That night, while Charlie, Sidney, and Kono were dining, six young men approached their table. One of them sat next to Kono and began speaking angrily in Japanese. Kono's face went white. After some arguing, Chaplin, Sidney, and Kono managed to leave the restaurant and get in a cab, with Kono only explaining that there was a, quote, rough element in Tokyo. The next day, May 15th, before a scheduled meeting with Prime Minister Inukai Tsuyoshi, Chaplin, Sidney, and Kono had accepted an invitation to join the Prime Minister's son, Ken Inukai, at a sumo wrestling match. Quote, As we watched them, an attendant tapped Mr. Ken Inukai on the shoulder and whispered something. He turned to us and excused himself, saying that something urgent had arisen and that he had to leave. Towards the end of the wrestling, he returned, looking white and shaken. I asked him if he was ill. He shook his head and suddenly covered his face with his hands. My father has just been assassinated. Japan was in the grip of its own rampant patriotism. Far-right, ultra-nationalist secret societies had formed within all branches of the Japanese military, with names like the Black Dragon Society and the League of Blood. Still at the early stages of their rapid imperial expansion, Japan was entering a period that would later be described as government by assassination. That day, 11 young naval officers had forced their way into the prime minister's residency and gunned him down. At the same time, bombs were detonated at the Bank of Japan and the prime minister's party office. It is not confirmed, but Chaplin was led to believe that the men who had confronted him at dinner were some of the men who would go on to commit the murder. During the ensuing trial, one of the ringleaders revealed in court that the plan had originally intended to kill Charlie Chaplin during his meeting with the PM. Quote, Chaplin is a popular figure in the United States and the darling of the capitalist class. We believed that killing him would cause a war with America, and thus we could kill two birds with a single stone. In the end, 41 military and civilian conspirators were tried, many using the courtroom as an opportunity to arouse popular sympathy by declaring loyalty to the emperor. The court received over 100,000 clemency petitions, either signed or written entirely in blood. Nine young conspirators, asking to be tried in open court, sent the judge a jar containing nine of their own pickled pinky fingers to prove their sincerity. In the end, the conspirators were given incredibly light sentences, and most were out of jail within two to three years. This case, later known as the May 15th incident, greatly eroded the rule of law and spelled doom for democracy in Japan. We will talk more about this fascinating period of history in the future when we cover Akira Kurosawa and Yasujiro Ozu. As quickly as he could, Chaplin boarded a boat for Seattle. He needed a vacation from his vacation. But the situation back home was also getting dire. Alf Reeves reported about the studio staff, quote, Most of the people who have left are out and things look pretty bad. The stock market is all to pieces, but we are hoping for the best. General conditions are still bad here. The picture business is going down generally. 
At this time, the usually distant Edna Purviance sent Chaplin a letter. She had slipped back into alcoholism and was suffering from a perforated stomach ulcer. She begged him for extra money. Her request went unanswered. Everything in Hollywood seemed to have changed. Many of the studio heads who had borrowed money to update their theaters to sound were now facing staggering debt and terrible economic conditions. A lot of the old guard had just quit. Doug Fairbanks and Mary Pickford were separated. There were new studios, new people, new techniques, and new streamlined methods of industrialized movie making that seemed to overrule the artistry and pioneering enthusiasm of early Hollywood. Worst of all, the conservative nationalism Chaplin had seen in Europe was spreading at home. Hundreds of American publications blamed Jewish foreigners for rising unemployment. There were even congressional hearings dedicated to find the, quote, Jewish influence in American films. For years, Will Hayes had been trying and failing to enforce moral censorship over Hollywood. When he was approached by a group of high-ranking Catholic reformers, he decided now was the time to take control. The Archbishop of Chicago recruited a man named Daniel Lord to draft a code of morality that promoted family values and respect for governments. Hayes later said, quote, My eyes nearly popped out when I read it. This was the very thing I had been looking for. Joe Breen, who at the time worked in the public relations branch of the Hayes office, was more forthcoming. Quote, it may be that Hayes thought these lousy Jews out here would abide by the code's provisions, but if he did, then he should be censured for his lack of proper knowledge of the breed. The Jews are simply a rotten bunch of vile people with no respect for anything beyond the making of money. Here we have paganism rampant and in its most virulent form. They are probably the scum of the scum of the earth. Los Angeles attorney Joseph Scott was brought in by the group to get the studio heads in line. In a meeting with Jack Warner, Louis B. Mayer, Adolf Zucker, and Joe Schenck, among others, Scott, quote, lashed into the Jews furiously, accusing them of a, quote, conspiracy to debauch the youth of the land. He told them that communistic radicals were, quote, 100% Jews, and that their, quote, damnable practices were a disgrace upon their race and upon America. The studio heads said nothing. It was partly out of fear that a culture war would further hurt profits, but it was also that they were a part of a generation of Jewish immigrants who had fled pogroms and were raised to not talk about such things out of fear of making the persecution worse. Adolf Zucker himself apologized profusely and promised to keep the dirt and filth out of Paramount's pictures. The other studio heads followed suit. Only Joe Schenck fought back, referring to Scott and the other Catholics as, quote, Narrow-minded and bigoted, he scorned his fellow moguls as self-abasing cowards. Shortly after this meeting, a gathering of bishops launched the Legion of Decency, calling upon 20 million American Catholics to pledge to boycott movies that officials deemed inappropriate. Such material included profanity, nudity, semi-nudity, provocative sexual postures, adultery, prostitution, homosexuality, glamorization of gangsters, violence, drug trafficking, bank robberies, any undermining of America, the police, the courts, and of course, the clergy. There could be no confrontations between labor and management or any depictions of racial discrimination. Furthermore, any criminal action had to be punished, and no criminal or crime could elicit sympathy from the audience. 
By December, the Production Code Administration had named Joe Breen as director. From this day forward, any film failing to receive a PCA certificate of approval would not be exhibited in mainstream theaters. Now, if you've never heard this story before, and you've wondered why old films from the 40s, 50s, and 60s depict a quaint and sanitized version of America that never existed, it's not because people were blind to reality. It's because of censorship. Chaplin was only cursorily aware of these developments. He was instead hoping to rekindle a relationship with Georgia Hale. He had brought her two suitcases worth of souvenirs, but the gesture did nothing to make up for his 17-month absence without a single letter or postcard. She refused his presence and left. They wouldn't speak again for 10 years. To make matters worse, the IRS was once again auditing Chaplin's creative accounting techniques. As a socialist who did whatever he could to avoid paying taxes, Chaplin took drastic action. He set fire to many precious pieces of film from his vaults, including a never-before-seen feature film of Joseph von Sternberg titled A Woman of the Sea, just so he could count them as total losses against his taxable income. I will discuss the full story of the Sternberg film on a future one-reeler. In July 1932, UA executive Joseph Schenck invited Chaplin for a weekend on his yacht. It was there he met a young woman that would provide meaning and stability to his life for many years to come. Paulette Goddard. Originally from New York, she was the daughter of a broken home. She traveled around the country with her mother, even picking potatoes to survive. Like Chaplin, she did what she had to do, later telling her secretary that at the age of 12, she would stand on a rainy street corner and approach men saying, quote, If you give me a dime, I'll cover you with my umbrella. If you give me a quarter, I'll let you look under my skirt. Changing her Jewish birth name, Levy, she became a Ziegfeld girl at the age of 14. At 16, she married a rich playboy, but later divorced him that same year. Rumor has it that at some point she worked as a roper for a card shark, pretending to be an innocent girl who would encourage wealthy men to gamble their money away. She confirmed the rumor to Douglas Fairbanks, but assured him that her former partner was, quote, the Robin Hood of gamblers. He stole from the rich and gave it to me. She arrived in Hollywood with a full bank account and an $18,000 car. At the time, a Model A Ford cost 260 bucks. She changed her natural brunette to blonde and booked a few bit parts in some Hal Roach films. But don't let her entrance fool you. Like Chaplin, she placed an incredible value on self-education. She hired a female English professor from USC to tutor her in the classics and art history. She would go on to collect fine art and would later audit classes in world history, French, and Spanish. A street-smart, fast-talker, she and Chaplin found an instant rapport. Appealing to his ego, she asked his advice about a potential film investment, which he delighted in counseling her to avoid. Chaplin quickly bought up her contract from Hal Roach and told her to revert back from her platinum blonde to her naturally dark hair. Chaplin's two sons, Charlie Jr. and Sidney, were now seven and six. He had seen them a few times before his trip to Europe, but had otherwise been absent from their lives. However, the young boys were beginning to gain press attention. They were profiled in the magazine Screenland, quote, Charlie has his father's troubled temperament. Sidney, like his mother, is equable, and if signs mean anything, life is going to be considerably harder on Charlie than on his little brother. Their mother, Lita, who was still working as a vaudeville singer, 
was signed to appear in the David Butler film The Little Teacher, and she secured small parts for her two boys in the film. Already comfortable with the press, Charlie Jr. informed a gaggle of reporters that he was going to be a great actor, while Sidney said he was going to grow up to be Mickey Mouse. However, on August 25th, Lita was served with a notice from Chaplin's attorney informing her that a petition had been filed objecting to the boys working in motion pictures. The judge ruled in Chaplin's favor. Lita appealed, but public sentiment was against her. The Boston Globe wrote, quote, A good mother prefers a normal childhood for her children. She was even catching flack from Chaplin's first wife, Mildred Harris, who now had a six-year-old of her own. Quote, I'd rather my child didn't do anything till he's old enough to know what he wants to do. I've been on the screen since I was eight. Child actors don't have a hard life. It isn't that. Quite the contrary. The danger is that they will be spoiled. Chaplin, for his part, did not have ill motives. He remembered how hard it was for him to transition from boy actor in Sherlock Holmes into a serious adult comedian. He told his sons, quote, If you're really in earnest about wanting to act, going into it now would be the worst thing in the world for you. You'd be typed as child actors, and when you reach the gawky stage, they'd drop you. Then you would have to make a complete comeback. If after you've grown up and you still want to act, I won't interfere. Lita wrote Chaplin a heartbreaking letter referencing the damaged reputation Chaplin had saddled her with, saying, quote, I had taken up a theatrical career in the hope that I might, by such a contact with the public, be able to remove the impression that I was coarse, vulgar, and uneducated. Chaplin and Lita's legal squabbles continued for months, but there was a silver lining to this dark cloud. Charlie began to take a more active role in his children's lives. He now took them to his house every weekend. Charlie Jr. recalled, quote, That wonderful, magical house on the hill with the man who lived there, the man who was so many men in one. We were to see them all now, the strict disciplinarian, the priceless entertainer, the taciturn, the moody dreamer, the wild man of Borneo with his flashes of volcanic temper. The beloved chameleon shape was to weave itself subtly through all my boyhood and was never to stop fascinating me. Paulette, who despite being only 22 at the time, loved the boys and welcomed them with open arms. Again, Charlie Jr. said, quote, We lost our hearts at once, never to regain them through all the golden years of our childhood. Have you ever realized, Paulette, how much you meant to us? You were like a mother, a sister, a friend, all in one. Chaplin spent the rest of 1932 and 1933 playing with Paulette and the kids on his new yacht writing a serialized tale of his European adventures for Women's Home Companion magazine, toying around with a few gags for a possible new film, and giving a few interviews about economics and his support for the presidential campaign of Franklin Delano Roosevelt. But with pressure for a new film mounting, Chaplin felt stuck. Quote, Although City Lights was a great triumph and had made more money than any talking picture at that time, I felt that to make another silent film would be giving myself a handicap. Also, I was obsessed by a depressing fear of being old-fashioned. These fears were exacerbated by a sudden reassessment of Chaplin by members of the press. Harry Potamkin wrote, quote, The cult of Charlie Chaplin has never allowed a decent study of a man of talent who has not realized the great work that might have been expected of him. Critic Lorenzo Rosas published an article titled Charlie Chaplin's Decline. Chaplin faced pressure of another sort. His friend, Upton Sinclair, was running a radical campaign to become governor of California. 
Part Bernie Sanders, part Donald Trump, Sinclair was a political outsider who capitalized on Depression-era anxieties and used his literary celebrity to win the Democratic nomination for governor. He promised a 50% tax on all businesses and individuals earning over $50,000 to fund his massive campaign to end poverty in California, a.k.a. EPIC. Studio execs rallied against him, threatening to move their productions to, you guessed it, Florida, if Sinclair was elected. To stop him, the studios filmed quite possibly the first campaign attack ads and played them at the beginning of their films. Meanwhile, the party-line communists, having already pilloried Sinclair for his treatment of Eisenstein, opposed him on principle. Chaplin was one of the few members of the Hollywood elite to support Sinclair even attending rallies and speaking at parties. But when it became a little too controversial, he requested his name be taken off any epic campaign material. In the end, Sinclair was defeated by Republican incumbent Frank Merriam. With his involvement in the Sinclair campaign and his constant talk of economics, some critics began to complain that Chaplin was getting above his station, that it was arrogant and conceited for a simple clown to comment on world affairs. We see this all the time to this day. I'm reminded of the Fox News commentator Laura Ingram telling LeBron James to shut up and dribble. Chaplin never unveiled his grand economic solution. Instead, perhaps in response to his critics, which at times seemed to hold an undeniable power over Chaplin's artistic life, he chose to express himself in a purely emotional way. He sat down and wrote a film about two misfits struggling to survive in an unforgiving, mechanized world. During the year of development, Chaplin's life was easy and without incident, and you can really feel that sense of relaxation in the finished story. The film does not have a multi-layer, high-concept structure like his previous features. Instead, as critic Otis Ferguson astutely points out, it is really a collection of two-reelers about the tramp and a young homeless woman called the gammon, a French word for street urchin. In the end, It was a story of survival in the age of industrialization that we would come to know as modern times. Final story goes like this. The tramp is working on the factory floor where he is driven insane trying to keep up with the manic automated machines. After being released from the mental hospital, he accidentally picks up a red flag that has fallen off of a truck and is mistaken for a communist agitator and thrown into prison. After he inadvertently stops a jailbreak, he is given a cushy jail cell. But when he is suddenly pardoned, he finds himself out on the street and does everything he can to get arrested again. He changes his mind when he meets the Gammon, a tough-minded orphan on the run from juvenile officers. They build a home together in a waterfront shack. But just when he has something to live for, the tramp is thrown back into prison after his former prison buddies rob the department store where he works as a night watchman. When he's released again, he finds the Gammon dancing in a grungy cabaret. He gets a job as a singing waiter, 
where he writes the lyrics on his cuffs. But as soon as he starts to sing, his cuffs fly off and he sings the song in a made-up gibberish. While he is singing, the juvenile officers arrest the gammon. The tramp rescues her, and after a moment of dejection, the two perk up with, quote, We'll get along. Before arm-in-arm, they walk towards the horizon. There was originally an alternate ending that Chaplin hoped would outdo the bittersweet pathos of City Lights. It exists in his original story notes, with the tramp ending up back in the hospital after failing to rescue the gammon. Quote, Fully recovered, the tramp, who is about to be discharged, is informed that a visitor is waiting to see him in the reception room. He makes his way laboriously towards it. When he arrives there, to his surprise, he finds the gammon attired as a nun. She is standing, and beside her is a mother superior. The gammon greets him, smiling wistfully. The tramp looks bewildered. Somehow a barrier has risen up between them. He tries to speak, but can say nothing. Smiling sympathetically, she takes his hand. You have been very ill, she says, and now you are going out into the world again. Do take care of yourself, and remember, I shall always like to hear from you. He tries to speak again, but with a gesture, gives it up. As she smiles, tears well up in her eyes. She stands as a final gesture, that they must part. The mother superior leads them to the door, and at the entrance of the hospital, she says her last goodbye, while the mother superior waits in the reception room. He walks down the hospital steps. She gazes after him. He turns and waves a last farewell and goes toward the city's skyline. She stands immobile, watching him fade away. There is something inscrutable in her expression, something of resignation and regret. She stands as though lost in a dream, watching after him, and her spirit goes with him. From out of herself, the ghost of the gammon appears and runs rampant down the hospital steps, dancing and bounding after him, calling and beckoning as she runs toward him. Along the lonely road, she catches up to him, dancing and circling around him, but he does not see her. He walks alone. She is still standing on the hospital steps. She is awakened from her reverie by a light touch, the hand of the mother superior. She stares and turns and smiles wistfully at the kind old face, and together they depart into the portals of the hospital again, fade out. Oh, man, I think this ending would have been so good. But whatever, the one they shot is good, too. In September of 1933, the studio was slowly ramped into production. The Chaplin studio was one of the last to have an old open stage, but now preparations were made to enclose it to modern sound era standards. Chaplin mailed the shooting script to Will H. Hayes' office requesting that the proposed title be kept secret until formal publication. The one bittersweet note during this time is that after 18 years of service, Taraichi Kono announced his intentions of leaving Chaplin. For a long time, he had disapproved of Chaplin's behavior, but recently, with Chaplin's life more subdued, he had begun to feel unuseful and that his few duties were usurped by Paulette. Chaplin was heartbroken and arranged for him to have a job as the head of UA in Japan. Kono returned to his homeland with a $10,000 parting gift from Charlie. Shooting began on October 11, 1934, with Chaplin shooting much of the factory scenes. He even hired Chester Conklin, the old Keystone comedian who had talked Chaplin out of quitting the movie business in 1914 as the walrus-faced workman who gets caught in the wheels. He was still troubled by the question of sound, 
At the end of November, he and Paulette did sound tests with his very first bits of scripted dialogue. Now, I find it incredibly affirming that even a great artist like Chaplin has some serious growing pains with the new medium. Here's an example of his script. This is a scene between the gammon and the tramp. What's your name? Me? Oh, mine's a silly name. You wouldn't like it. It begins with an X. Begins with an X? See if you can guess. Not eczema? Oh, worse than that. Just call me Charlie. Charlie? There's no X in that. No. Oh, well. Where do you live? No place. Here. There. Anywhere. Anywhere? That's near where I live. (laughs) Oh, man. That is rough. I mean, it's kind of funny, but like, it's mostly not. Uh, clearly, Chaplin was also unhappy with his writing and, in a credit to his taste, attempted no more dialogue scenes for modern times. Unfortunately, the gammon was not the part that Paulette had in mind. Chaplin wanted her to embody a realistic street urchin at a time when Hollywood leading ladies were expected to be glamorous under any circumstances. When she showed up on set with her hair perfectly coiffed, Chaplin had someone dump a bucket of water on her head. Despite this, Paulette later recalled, quote, That was my best film work, and it's still my favorite movie. Charlie could be difficult at times, but it was an education and a marvelous experience. Several new and inventive filming techniques were used for modern times, including hanging miniatures. This is when a small miniature set is hung in front of a camera in perfect alignment and perspective to an existing full-size set in the background, and this is to achieve the illusion of a vast factory. They used rear screen projection and glass scene painting. This is for the famous roller skating scene where Charlie appears to skate perilously close to a balcony edge without a railing. This effect was made by placing a pane of glass between the camera and the action. On the glass is painted an image of everything below the balcony. On the glass is painted in perfect perspective everything below the balcony, giving the illusion that Chaplin is skating on a great height when in actuality he's just on a flat surface. In addition to the technical innovations, there were also futurist elements that proved to be quite prescient. In particular, Chaplin created a kind of closed-circuit television surveillance system for the factory. Modern eyes failed to appreciate that this was years before televisions were commercially available and a decade before George Orwell published his novel, 1984. Now, in early 1935, Chaplin became involved with a charming, cynical, and seductive anti-fascist named Otto Katz, a.k.a. Rudolf Breda. Katz had just arrived in Hollywood and, with the assistance of writers Donald Ogden Stewart and Dorothy Parker, had established the Hollywood Anti-Nazi League. Chaplin and Goddard were some of the earliest members. By the mid-30s, the League had grown to some four or 5,000 members. As screenwriter Mary McCall wrote, quote, Nobody goes to anybody's house anymore to sit and have fun. We listen to speeches and sign pledges and feel that warming glow which comes from being backed in close with a lot of people who agree with you. Unfortunately for many of the members, Otto Katz was a dangerous spy for Comintern, who was suspected to have been involved in various purges and assassinations. Unconditionally faithful to Stalin, he was sent to Los Angeles to use the fight against fascism as a way to spread anti-American sentiment. This effort was massively successful and took advantage of people like Chaplin, who intellectually dabbled in socialist ideas without ever experiencing the practical realities. In 1940, 
Katz is suspected to have aided the assassination of Leon Trotsky. After the war, he would return to his native Czechoslovakia, where in 1952 he was accused of high treason in an anti-Semitic, anti-communist show trial and hanged under the pseudonym Andre Simone. This anti-patriotism was rampant during the interwar years across all liberal democracies. George Orwell, commonly thought of as a leftist in modern times, wrote, quote, In left-wing circles, it is always felt that there is something slightly disgraceful in being an Englishman. Many left-wingers were chipping away at English morale. At the end of July, Chaplin shot the nun ending. But the response to the footage was lukewarm, and according to the production notes, a frustrated Chaplin left the studio to take a weekend yacht trip. It was rumored that Chaplin, at the behest of Katz, had screened a working cut to the head of the Soviet film industry, Boris Shumiatsky. Shumiatsky then published an article in the Soviet propaganda newspaper Pravda, claiming that he convinced Chaplin to change the ending of modern times to make it more ideologically acceptable. And while there is no evidence in the studio records or the FBI surveillance files that any such visit took place, Chaplin was understandably terrified that Breen and the PCA would use the Pravda article to shut down his film. Alf Reeves called a press conference saying, quote, Nobody could ever tell Chaplin anything about such matters. He, as you know, has very much his own way and his own ideas. Always. The Russian reads deep, terrible social meaning into sequences that Mr. Chaplin considers funny. I can assure you that this picture is intended as entertainment, and perhaps it might be said, too, that Mr. Chaplin's purpose in making this picture is to make money. Breen was mollified, yet upon seeing the rough cut of modern times, he still made five demands. One, cut the homosexual pansy gag. Two, cut the word dope. Three, cut the stomach rumblings of the minister's wife. Four, cut the brassiere gag in the department store. And five, cut the close-up of the udders of a cow. Chaplin was forced to make these changes. However, the coincidence between the rumored Soviet influence and the change of the film's ending is worth noting, and it would be held up as fact in the coming years as Chaplin faced increased pressure from the anti-communist FBI. Chaplin shot the final sequence in the cafe over 12 days. This was to be the first and only time the tramp's voice was heard on screen. Thumbing his nose at his critics, he sang in improvised gibberish that was somewhere between French and Italian. La spinage au la bouchon, si grand de pote belle, si rakish bagaletto, qui le tout la qui la toi. At some point during the shooting of the scenes, Chaplin rewrote the ending. The final shots were made on August 30th, 1934. In total, the production lasted ten and a half months, his shortest production since A Woman of Paris. It was now time for Chaplin to work on the music. This was to be his biggest musical undertaking to date. He reunited with Alfred Newman, not the Mad Magazine character, the composer for City Lights, and Edward Powell was engaged as orchestrator. Powell hired the 23-year-old composer David Raxon to join him. 
Despite being told to expect a brilliant, experienced composer, orchestrator, and arranger, Chaplin was somewhat disappointed when, as he said, quote, an infant showed up. Raxon launched into work with enthusiasm, but immediately butted heads with Chaplin, saying, quote, I felt that nothing but the best would do for this remarkable film. When I thought his approach was a bit vulgar, I would say, I think we can do better than that. To Charlie, this was insubordination, and the culprit had to go. After only a week and a half, Raxon was fired. But after being consulted by Alf Reeves and Alfred Newman to not fire someone who clearly cared as much as Raxon did, Chaplin changed his mind. Raxon recalled, quote, This was the beginning of four and a half months of work and some of the happiest days of my life. In describing their work, he wrote, quote, He didn't feed me a little tune and say, You take it from there. On the contrary, we spent hours, days, months in that projection room, running scenes and bits of action over and over, and we had a marvelous time shaping the music until it was exactly the way we wanted. Perhaps hindsight gave him rose-colored glasses, as 10-year-old Charlie Jr. would recall, quote, If the people in his studio had suffered from Dad's perfectionist drive, the musicians endured pure torture. Dad wore them all out. Edward Powell concentrated so hard writing the music that he almost lost his eyesight and had to go to a specialist to save it. Dave Raxon, working an average of 20 hours a day, lost 25 pounds and sometimes was so exhausted that he would sleep on the studio floor. Al Newman saw him one day in the studio street walking with tears running down his cheeks. On December 4th, during one of their late-night sessions, Chaplin accused the musicians of dogging it. Newman threw his baton at Chaplin, stormed off the stage, and called Samuel Goldwyn to say that he would never work with Chaplin again. Raxon and Powell finished the orchestration on their own. From these sessions came the tune for Chaplin's most commercially successful song, Smile, which was used for the 1954 reissue of Modern Times and sung by Nat King Cole. Smile, though your heart is aching Smile even though it's breaking When there are clouds in the sky You'll get by Modern Times had two previews, one in San Francisco and the other at the Alexander Theater in Glendale. Finally, it had its opening at Grauman's Chinese Theater in Hollywood on February 12th. When compared to Chaplin's previous premieres, it was a relatively modest event. The press reaction was mixed. Some found the work sloppy and cliché. Upton Sinclair said it, quote, just repeats Charlie's old material. Some felt that Chaplin's attempt at a socio-political satire was shallow, while the communists were in a period of glorifying heavy machinery and were uncomfortable praising a film that criticized industry. Of course, the film was banned in Nazi Germany. In fact, all of Chaplin's films had been banned there due to the Nazis' belief that Chaplin was Jewish. Yet over the 90 years since its release, modern times has grown in critical esteem and importance. What was seen then as recycling old material is now seen as polishing the best bits of his material. When many of the old Chaplin shorts are inaccessible and unpalatable to modern audiences, but really, Chaplin's staying power comes from his inability to write anything that isn't autobiographical. 
Every scene, every gag, every social comment is rooted in his true lived experience. Working on the assembly line and suffering a nervous breakdown? That's Chaplin struggling to keep up with his early film quotas. Being chosen at random as a guinea pig to test the bellows feeding machine? Is Chaplin becoming famous through luck and being fed more money and attention than he could chew? Picking up the red flag and being mistaken for a communist? Well, that's pretty self-explanatory. This, I believe, is the true secret to Chaplin's longevity and resonance. This specificity and honesty has made the work endure, and in many ways, it only grows in resonance to this day. One can't help but think of the madness-inducing assembly line when we hear modern stories about Amazon fulfillment centers or iPhone factories in China. Now, the release of the film was accompanied by two plagiarism accusations. The first was a suit brought against Chaplin by Michael Kustoff, a mentally ill lawyer who claimed that there were over 100 similarities between his self-published autobiography and modern times. The case was quickly dismissed. Now, there was another accusation by the Franco-German production company Tobis of plagiarizing the 1931 René Clair film A Nous la Liberté, which is a buddy comedy about two escaped convicts who get work at an industrial factory, one becoming a high-level executive and the other ending up a homeless tramp on a bench. Everyone at the Chaplin studio denied having ever seen the film, although Tobis did secure an affidavit from a Chaplin studio technician who claimed to have run the assembly line sequence from Anu La Liberté for Chaplin over a dozen times. Tobis claimed 1.2 million francs in damages. However, Claire did not support it, saying, quote, Chaplin is too great a man, and I admire him too much to admit that his creative genius should be contested in any way. I myself owe him very much, and besides, if he has borrowed a few ideas from me, he has done me a great honor. Tobis persisted, going so far as to try to have modern times banned in France. The suit dragged on until it was greatly complicated by the Second World War, during which the Chaplin studio tried to claim that the Nazis wanted to hurt Chaplin through the lawsuit. The case was finally settled out of court in 1947 for about 25,000 US dollars. Shortly after the release of Modern Times, Chaplin started to receive kidnapping threats against his children. With the 1934 Lindbergh baby kidnapping still fresh in everyone's mind, Chaplin hired armed bodyguards at his house and studio. Trapped in the house all day, he set to work immediately on his next project, his longtime dream of playing Napoleon. Now, if you remember from our first episode, Chaplin's mother used to describe his father, popular music hall singer Charles Chaplin Sr., as Napoleon-like. And throughout his childhood, she would frequently act out long, dramatic improvisations between Napoleon and his wife, Empress Josephine. Now, it's hard for us in the modern era to really understand just how big of a psychic hold Napoleon had on people born in the 1800s. Most of us think of him in terms of Freud's Napoleon complex, but at the time, he was a force of nature, the ultimate political celebrity, a boogeyman, a symbol of power, an unbelievable figure that had done the impossible. For Chaplin, the thought set his imagination on fire, and as we have discussed in previous episodes, his obsession with playing Napoleon would be a constant throughout his professional career. Sidney, who was mourning the recent death of his longtime wife Minnie and niece, wrote to Chaplin, quote, 
There has been considerable publicity over here concerning your next picture. They say you are thinking of doing a Napoleonic story. Of course, I know that this publicity has broken before, but if you are really serious in the matter, I think that a dramatic picture coming from you would be a great box office attraction at this time, as so many millions of people are waiting to hear you in the talkies. Chaplin employed several people to help him with the script and had even paid 78,000 francs to have the exclusive rights to a French book about the man. He even had publicity photos taken with him wearing the Napoleon outfit that he had once worn with Lita Gray to Marion Davies' costume party. But in the end, the film never came together. On February 17th, Chaplin, Paulette, and Paulette's mother took a cruise to Hawaii. He befriended French poet, novelist, and future avant-garde filmmaker Jean Cocteau, who was recovering from an illness with his lover Marcel Kill. Cocteau could not speak English, and Chaplin could not speak French. Paulette, who could have translated, abstained and instead took great pleasure in watching the two artists create a kind of half-spoken, half-signed language together. Supposedly, at some point during the voyage, Chaplin looked at the crates labeled Hong Kong and decided on a whim, let's go to China. When Paulette resisted, saying that she had nothing to wear, he assured her that they would buy whatever they needed there. But this was all a ruse. Chaplin, still being a foreigner in the United States, had to inquire with the INS before traveling to another country. He had gone to their office in L.A. days before the trip and kept it all secret from Paulette. Paulette and Chaplin's relationship was different than all his previous ones. It was defined by a playful independence and ambiguity, much to the frustration of reporters. They would frequently engage with the press in a cat-and-mouse game, with exchanges like this. Are you and Mr. Chaplin married? It's never been announced officially. But is it so? It's been rumored so much. Sometimes the rumors have us married, sometimes they have us not married. Back and forth, back and forth. Would you deny that you are Mrs. Chaplin? I never discuss my private life. I find that my private life is one thing and my career another. Their independence from each other was necessary because they were at very different stages of their lives. Chaplin was an aging comic, constantly thinking of joining many of his old silent film colleagues in retirement, while Paulette was an up-and-coming star, looking to build off the positive press she received from her role in modern times. This was absolutely the worst possible time for her to go on a four-month vacation. Trapped on the sea, they started drifting apart. Upon their return, Paulette began having affairs with other men, including Ernst Lubitsch and George Gershwin. Somewhat resigned to his young wife having other lovers, Chaplin kept her attached to him by dangling the hope of another starring role in one of his films. He had begun a script based on a story told to him by his European fling May Reeves about a white Russian countess who had become a Shanghai taxi girl who stows away in the cabin of an American diplomat. It would later become the basis for his final film, The Countess from Hong Kong. Months passed and still Chaplin had no script. He collaborated with writers on other ideas, even reuniting with his old friend Max Eastman on a possible project, but nothing ever seemed to get finished. Paulette was sick of waiting. She convinced their neighbor and powerful producer David O. Selznick to let her audition for the role of Scarlett O'Hara in his upcoming film Gone with the Wind. This was the most sought-after role in film history. Over 1,400 actresses auditioned for it. Yet with each passing round, Paulette kept getting a callback. And it appeared that she might be playing Scarlett after all. 
Further ingratiating herself with the Selznicks, she hired David's brother, Myron, as her agent and issued Chaplin an ultimatum. Make her a picture or she wouldn't stay on with the studio. Chaplin left for an extended stay at Pebble Beach. Before he left, he received an ominous package. Inside was a booklet of Nazi propaganda titled, The Jews Are Looking at You. Inside was a picture of his face with the description, The Little Jewish Tumbler, As Disgusting as He Is Boring. Now we've seen a lot of pictures of the people in the news, and we've got to know a lot of them by sight. Chamberlain with his umbrella, Winston Churchill with his hats, or Belisha, well, we know him quite all right. But there's one whose lovely photograph we've seen for years and years, and we ask ourselves this question every time his face appears. Who is this man who looks like Charlie Chaplin? What makes him think that he can win a war? It can't be the moustache. That only makes us laugh. And Charlie's done it better, and before. If it wasn't for the boots and cane and trousers, you couldn't tell the two of them apart. But the whole idea's absurd. Charlie's never said a word. An adult couldn't play a silent part. And imagine Adolf starring in the gold rush. He hasn't got a half of Charlie's charms. But he gives a lot of troubles to his film director, Gobbles, when he plays the leading part in Shoulder Arms. He's amusing when he tries to play the villain. It's bound to get a laugh in every climb. I believe it's all a fake-up. And in spite of all the makeup, we are convinced it's Charlie Chaplin all the time. Chaplin formally announced that he would never again play the tramp. A New York Times editorial wrote, quote, It is an ironical thought that the mustached face of Adolf Hitler will be the only living reminder of the little clown. Goodbye, Charlot. Pleasant dreams. Ever since Hitler's rise to power in Germany, comic strips had routinely featured face-offs between the Tramp and the Fuhrer. Chaplin couldn't open a newspaper without looking into a strange mirror where an evil doppelganger stared back in his face. But the more he learned about Hitler, the more he realized how much they had in common. A shiver raced up his spine. Chaplin and Hitler had been born within four days of each other in April 1889. Hitler, like Chaplin, was born to a poor family with siblings from other parents. He moved around a lot as a child, struggling to fit in or find any kind of security. His father was distant and severe and refused to allow him to become an artist. Hitler's father suddenly died in 1903, only a year and a half after Charlie's father suddenly died. Hitler moved to Vienna to follow his dreams of becoming a painter, but was denied entry to the Academy of Fine Arts. When his beloved mother died, he was 18, and Hitler became a tramp. At the outset of World War I, Hitler was conscripted into the Austro-Hungarian army, but, like Chaplin, was deemed unfit for service. However, Hitler moved to Munich and, due to a clerical error, was allowed to enlist in the Bavarian army. Chaplin fashioned his little mustache as a silly accent for his lovable tramp, while Hitler cut his Bavarian mustache down to fit under a German gas mask. After the war, they both used the 20th century power of mass media to become the two most famous men in the world, ideological opposites on the single coin of modernity. This 
is a one in a billion historical coincidence that was not lost on people of the day. As an article from The Spectator read, quote, each in his own way has expressed the ideas, sentiments, aspirations of the millions of struggling citizens ground between the upper and lower millstones of society. Their identical little mustache might well have been fixed by nature to betray the common origin of their genius, for genius each of them undeniably possesses. Each has mirrored the same reality, the predicament of the little man in modern society. Each is a distorting mirror, the one for good, the other for untold evil. In Pebble Beach, Chaplin was joined by his friend, composer and writer, Conrad Berkovici. Berkovici had spent time working as a journalist in Europe and had even interviewed Nazi propaganda minister Joseph Goebbels. He ranted and raved against the fascist regimes and encouraged Chaplin to take on Hitler. Berkovici allegedly even went so far as to write out a six-page treatment filled with gags and ideas about what such a confrontation might look like. And allegedly, Chaplin was so enthused he even proposed an 85-15 profit split should the film ever be made. After returning to L.A., Chaplin allegedly stopped returning Berkovici's calls, and soon a notice was published to the press that Chaplin was working on a satire about Hitler. Berkovici sent Chaplin a registered letter but never got a response. When he returned to Los Angeles, he ran into Chaplin twice around town. The first time, Chaplin hid. The second time, he made arrangements for a private meeting and then failed to show up. Berkovici would eventually sue Chaplin for plagiarism, and Chaplin would settle, paying Berkovici $95,000. Chaplin would, of course, insist that he was the sole author of the script. But supporting his case is the fact that his brother, Sidney, had written, directed, and starred in a film called King Queen Joker in 1921 in which he played the dual role of the King of Coronia and a jocular barber. When the king is kidnapped by revolutionaries, he's substituted by the barber. Sidney's original film even featured a scene in which his barber character madly shaves a terrified customer to the tune of Franz Liszt's Hungarian Rhapsody. Whatever the source of inspiration, Chaplin moved forward. He hired the 26-year-old Marxist heir to a family of Pebble Beach millionaires, Dan James, to finish writing the script. In many ways, this was the Napoleon film that he never made. Oh, did I mention that Hitler was also obsessed with Napoleon? The idea of making a film that satirized Hitler was incredibly controversial. Hollywood had made no attempt to criticize the Nazis. And according to author Ben Erwand in his book, The Collaboration, Hollywood's Pact with Hitler, many Jewish Hollywood executives enthusiastically worked with Nazi censors to alter their films or even cancel productions entirely in order to gain access to the German film market. I know, Hollywood bending over backwards to avoid upsetting a totalitarian genocidal regime so that they can make tons of money. Shocking. Even as late as 1938, 20th Century Fox was requesting Hitler's views about American movies, signing their letters with Heil Hitler. But Jack Warner had had enough. In 1936, Warner Brothers studio salesman Joe Kaufman had been beaten to death by Nazi stormtroopers in Berlin. Jack later recalled, quote, Like many an outnumbered Jew, he was trapped in an alley. They, the Nazi hoodlums, hit him with their fists and clubs, and then kicked the life out of him with their boots and left him dying there. Breaking with his fellow studio heads, 
Warner released the film Confessions of a Nazi Spy, starring Edward G. Robinson in May 1939. The film criticized Nazis and their American sympathizers. It was a box office failure upon release, and Hitler banned all Warner Brothers productions from being shown in Nazi-occupied countries. The prospect of Chaplin following in Jack Warner's footsteps had UA worried. After announcing the film, the British government said that they would prohibit its exhibition in keeping with its appeasement policy toward the Germans. Chaplin later wrote, quote, More worrying letters came from the New York office, imploring me not to make the film, but I was determined to go ahead, for Hitler must be laughed at. It helped when Chaplin received an envoy from President Franklin Delano Roosevelt, ensuring the film would get a release in the United States. Chaplin felt strongly that he must call out the Nazis for their anti-Semitism. For most of his career, Chaplin had been followed with inquiries and speculation about his Jewish heritage. After all, this was an era when eugenic pseudoscience was taken as fact. For his part, Chaplin never took offense and had instead gone out of his way to praise and admire the Jewish people. In his 1921 travelogue, he describes meeting an eight-year-old girl on the deck of a boat on his way back to New York City. Quote, I'm Jewish, she said. That accounts for your genius. Oh, do you think Jewish people are clever, she asks? Of course. All great geniuses have Jewish blood in them. No, I'm not Jewish, but I am sure there must be some somewhere in me. I hope so. Now, if you remember, it was Sidney Chaplin who had grown up believing that he was half Jewish from his father. Yet, it was also Sidney Chaplin that looked more like Charles Chaplin Sr. Charlie would at times express doubts as to whether or not his mother had mixed up the details, and it was in fact he that was descended from the mysterious South African businessman, Mr. Hawks. In addition to his own personal feelings, Chaplin was surrounded by Jewish co-workers. Paulette herself was half-Jewish on her father's side. In a conscious act of solidarity, Chaplin announced that he would not play the tramp and would instead be known as the Jewish Barber. Furthermore, this would be Chaplin's first film with full dialogue. He was fully planning to cast Paulette in the leading lady role, but there was a problem. David O. Selznick had narrowed his search for Scarlett O'Hara down to three actresses. Paulette was his favorite, but according to Selznick's wife, Irene, he was nervous. Paulette's ambiguous marital status did not conform to the strict expectations of the production code administration. When he brought this up, Paulette had told contradictory and implausible stories about the details of her secret marriage to Chaplin, at one point claiming they were married years earlier by the mayor of Catalina, only there is no mayor of Catalina. Chaplin's reputation for both scandalous relationships and petty litigious squabbles made Selznick hesitant to risk his grand production with Paulette's quasi-marital baggage. And worst of all, he didn't have time to sort it out. In order to stay within the time limits of MGM's loan-out of actor Clark Gable, he had to start shooting and was already filming the burning of Atlanta scenes. It is Hollywood legend that as the dying fires of the torched city set were glowing in the night sky, Myron Selznick appeared out of the darkness arm-in-arm arm with actress Vivian Lee. David, I'd like you to meet Scarlett O'Hara. And the rest is Hollywood history. Paulette had lost out on the role of a lifetime, and she knew it was in large part due to her husband. November 1938 brought Kristallnacht, the coordinated Nazi attacks against the Jewish population of Germany. 
At the same time, MGM, the biggest studio in America, bought German bonds that financed rearmament factories to get around currency export restrictions. Finally, Chaplin finished his story. A Jewish barber fighting in World War I for the country of Tomania is injured in a plane crash and suffers from amnesia. Twenty years later, he returns home only to find that Tomania has transformed into a fascist country under the dictatorship of the ruthless Adenoid Hinkle, also played by Chaplin. The barber now has to live in a repressive Jewish ghetto where he falls in love with his neighbor, Hannah, played by Paulette Goddard. Together, they resist persecution from the gangs of stormtroopers that police the ghetto. The barber is captured, but is rescued by his old World War I commanding officer, Schultz, who helps him regain his memory. Meanwhile, after being denied a loan for his growing military by a Jewish banker, Adenoid Hinkle gives the order to purge the Jews, while arguing with Benzino Napoloni, the dictator of Bacteria, over who should get to invade the neighboring state of Austerlich first. While trying to escape the invasion forces, the barber, Hannah, and Schultz are captured and sent to a concentration camp, but Schultz and the barber escape in stolen uniforms. The real Hinkle, while dressed in civilian clothes to go duck hunting, is mistaken for the escaped convict and jailed. Meanwhile, the barber, while attempting to cross the Austerlich frontier, is mistaken for Hinkle and driven to a victory parade where he is expected to give a speech before a massive crowd. Not knowing what else to do, the barber announces that he, Hinkle, has had a change of heart. He gives an impassioned speech for brotherhood and goodwill, encouraging the world to fight for liberty and democracy. In January 1939, Dan James was tasked with adapting the notes into a five-act script with dialogue. Sidney and his new wife, Gypsy, moved to Los Angeles, fearing the escalating tensions in Europe. And finally, the copyright was filed for what would become The Great Dictator. Hitler had begun expanding east, announcing the unification of Austria and retaking the Sudetenland region of Czechoslovakia through the British-brokered Munich Agreement. Chaplin collected every newsreel he could find about his adversary, screening them over and over and over again in his private room. Dan James recalls Chaplin would sit and watch the film saying, quote, Oh, you bastard. You son of a bitch. You swine. I know it's in your mind. This guy's one of the greatest actors I've ever seen. James finished his script on September 1st, 1939. At 300 pages, it was one of the most elaborate Hollywood scripts that had ever been written. That same day, Germany invaded Poland. Two days later, Britain and France declared war. Chaplin had to move quickly. He assembled his crew, including two new assistant directors, his half-brother Wheeler Dryden, and a fun-loving socialist named Robert Meltzer, who would later die on the beaches of Normandy. Much to the shock of the Chaplin studio, Charlie replaced Roly Tothero, his cameraman of 23 years, with Carl Struess. Tothero stayed on working as a camera op, but never forgave Chaplin. For Chaplin's part, he had grown dissatisfied with Tothero's outdated filming style. 
The problem with making a movie every five years at this time was technology was changing so fast that every new production brought a whole new series of technological innovations that Chaplin didn't understand. This was also his first film dealing with the new work rules under the National Labor Relations Board. Despite being a New Deal enthusiast, he hated regulations. Having done his own makeup since childhood, he was now required to have a makeup artist who stood around all day with nothing to do. But his real nemesis was the new script supervisor. The scripty, as they're called today, is the person who monitors every take, making sure that it adheres to the script and maintains continuity. She drove Chaplin crazy with her constant notes, causing him to ask out loud, Who are these people? The role of Hannah had always been meant for Paulette, but by this time she and Chaplin were spending most of their time apart. Chaplin was shocked when Myron Selznick demanded she be paid $2,500 a week. This led to some awkward work politics. As Dan James recalled, quote, You belong to the Paulette faction or to the Chaplin faction. You couldn't be both. Feeling spurred on by the rapid pace of global events, Chaplin began shooting on September 9th and from then on rarely took a day off. On November 15th, Douglas Fairbanks and his new wife Sylvia visited the set. Chaplin noticed he looked older and stouter than before. It would be the last time he ever saw the man he later declared was his only true friend. Less than a month later, Douglas Fairbanks died in his sleep. Chaplin took a rare day off for his funeral on December 15th. After the funeral, he moved on to the Hinkle scenes. While shooting the rally scene, Chaplin completely improvised the German gibberish of the speech. Admiral Hinkler has just said yesterday Tumania was down, but today she has risen. Just before Christmas, Chaplin shot what would become one of his most memorable scenes of the film. The idea was partially inspired by photos of Albert Speer's Reich Chancellery. Deep inside Hitler's cavernous private study hall was a massive globe. Chaplin saw the globe as the ultimate object of Hitler's desire, so he choreographed a dance ballet. While this may seem improvised, every moment was meticulously planned, with notes such as, 1. Hinkle moves hypnotically toward the globe, one hand on hip, one outstretched. He lifts it from its stand. There is a moment of magical concentration. The globe becomes a balloon. Hinkle bounces it from wrist to wrist and off the top of his head. He finds he can do what he likes with it. The world is his oyster. He laughs ecstatically as he plays with it with nonchalance. While working on their film series, Unknown Chaplin, historians Kevin Brownlow and David Gill unearthed another inspiration for this moment. They found a home movie from a party at Pickfair in the early 1920s, where Chaplin, wearing an improvised toga and crowned with a laurel wreath, performed a dance with a globe topped by a World War I German helmet. 
Comedian John Oki was hired to play Benzino Napoloni, based, of course, on Italian fascist Benito Mussolini. Oki was a veteran of the stage and a popular radio performer, but his career had suffered from his drinking. Chaplin took a liking to him, and Jack was so inspired he managed to stop drinking out of fear of missing a day's work. Charlie Jr. recalled, quote, Jack has a tough hide and was able to take Dad's drive in stride. Working in his scenes with Oki brought out a competitive spirit in Chaplin. It was not jealousy, but his professional instinct to top him with his own comedy. They played comedy together like an intense game of tennis, each taking great pleasure in trying to beat the other. After one thrilling volley, Chaplin turned to Oki mid-scene and said with a grin, quote, If you really want to steal a scene from me, you son of a bitch, just look straight into the camera. They had so much fun playing Hinkle and Napoloni together that they once stayed in costume and went to a party given by Mary Pickford in honor of Lord Mountbatten. Chaplin had hired extras for his recreation of the Nuremberg rallies, but was ultimately unsatisfied with the footage. Instead, he ended up using several inventive movie tricks. One crowd shot was made by having a series of small wooden figurines who could be raised and lowered to appear like saluting Tomanians. Another shot of a vast writhing crowd was made by placing grape nut cereal on a vibrating tray. By the end of March, Chaplin had already shot most of the 477,000 feet of film. It was his shortest ever production time. All he had left to do was the final speech, which at this point existed only in a note that read, quote, Clown turns into the prophet. Originally, he had intended his grand speech to be intercut with scenes of Spanish firing squads putting down their guns, a Japanese bomber pilot dropping toys on parachutes, a parade of goose-stepping soldiers breaking into a waltz, and a Nazi stormtrooper risking his life to save a Jewish girl from an oncoming car. Even after these ideas were abandoned, many questioned if the speech would come off as too preachy. Tim Durant recalled, quote, there was a great argument that it did not belong in the picture. It was unesthetic. It was wrong to have Charlie go out there and propagandize. The film salesman said, quote, You'll lose a million dollars for that. Chaplin said, quote, I don't care if it's five million. I'm going to do it. His first draft of the speech ridiculed Hitler more as an enemy of fun. Quote, it seems our laws are always telling us what not to do, are always keeping us from enjoying ourselves. Human beings are made just as much for having fun as for goose-stepping and sweating in factories. Other notes show he was thinking about appeasement. Quote, Yes, let us have appeasement. Let us right the wrongs due to nations. Chaplin's tacit belief that Russian communists were the ones who would stand up to Hitler was shattered in 1940, when the Soviets and Nazis signed a non-aggression pact. For many who had believed in the communist revolution as the inevitable march of justice, this felt like the end of the world. The old ideological safety nets were gone. Chaplin was on his own. He would have to say what he really thought. All the while, Hitler kept pressing on. On April 9th, he invaded Denmark and Norway. In May, Germany attacked France, and by June 22nd, France, which at the time was considered the greatest army in the world, surrendered. On June 24th, Chaplin recorded the final version of his speech. Racing to finish the film before the next invasion, Chaplin, along with composer Meredith Wilson, completed the score in a shocking three weeks, and on September 1st, a completed print of the film was ready. He held three previews in rapid succession, making minor changes after each showing. 
the German Luftwaffe began a systematic nightly bombing campaign of London. The Battle of Britain had begun. After several more previews, Chaplin was satisfied and terrified. A recent Gallup poll had shown that 96% of Americans opposed joining the war. Furthermore, the studio had been inundated with threatening letters sympathetic to the Nazi cause. Chaplin thought he was more likely to get sympathetic press in New York rather than L.A. and scheduled the premiere for October 15th. Other than Gone with the Wind, The Great Dictator was the most highly anticipated premiere of the era. For the first time since he had become an international icon, the world would hear Chaplin's own words in his own voice. This is what he had to say. I'm sorry, but I don't want to be an emperor. That's not my business. I don't want to rule or conquer anyone. I should like to help everyone if possible. Jew, Gentile, black man, white. We all want to help one another. Human beings are like that. We want to live by each other's happiness, not by each other's misery. We don't want to hate and despise one another. In this world, there's room for everyone, and the good earth is rich and can provide for everyone. The way of life can be free and beautiful, but we have lost the way. Greed has poisoned men's souls, has barricaded the world with hate, has goose-stepped us into misery and bloodshed. We have developed speed, but we have shut ourselves in. Machinery that gives abundance has left us in want. Our knowledge has made us cynical, our cleverness hard and unkind. We think too much and feel too little. More than machinery, we need humanity. More than cleverness, we need kindness and gentleness. Without these qualities, life will be violent and all will be lost. The aeroplane and the radio have brought us closer together. The very nature of these inventions cries out for the goodness in men, cries out for universal brotherhood, for the unity of us all. Even now, my voice is reaching millions throughout the world, millions of despairing men, women, and little children, victims of a system that makes men torture and imprison innocent people. To those who can hear me, I say, do not despair. The misery that is now upon us is but the passing of greed, the bitterness of men who fear the way of human progress. The hate of men will pass and dictators die, and the power they took from the people will return to the people. And so long as men die, liberty will never perish. Soldiers, don't give yourselves to brutes. Men who despise you, enslave you, who regiment your lives, tell you what to do, what to think, and what to feel, who drill you, diet you, treat you like cattle, use you as cannon fodder. Don't give yourselves to these unnatural men, machine men with machine minds and machine hearts. You are not machines. You are not cattle. You are men. You have the love of humanity in your hearts. You don't hate, only the unloved hate, the unloved and the unnatural. Soldiers, don't fight for slavery, fight for liberty. In the 17th chapter of St. Luke, it is written, the kingdom of God is within man, not one man nor a group of men, but in all men, in you. You, the people, have the power, the power to create machines, the power to create happiness. You, the people, have the power to make this life free and beautiful, to make this life a wonderful adventure. Then in the name of democracy, let us use that power. Let us all unite. Let us fight for a new world, a decent world that will give men a chance to work, that will give youth a future and old age a security. By the promise of these things, brutes have risen to power, but they lie. They do not fulfill that promise. They never will. Dictators free themselves, but they enslave the people. Now let us fight to fulfill that promise. Let us fight 
to free the world, to do away with national barriers, to do away with greed, with hate and intolerance. Let us fight for a world of reason, a world where science and progress will lead to all men's happiness. Soldiers, in the name of democracy, let us all unite! <laughs> Can you hear me? Wherever you are, look up, Hannah. The clouds are lifting. The sun is breaking through. We are coming out of the darkness into the light. We are coming into a new world, a kindlier world, where men will rise above their hate, their greed and brutality. Look up, Hannah. The soul of man has been given wings. And at last he is beginning to fly. He is flying into the rainbow, into the light of hope, into the future, the glorious future that belongs to you, to me, and to all of us. Look up, Hannah. Look up. People didn't know what to make of this. Leftists accused Chaplin of being a warmonger, conservatives accused him of supporting leftists, isolationists accused him of catering to the British, and Warhawks said it reeked of intellectual elitism. American critics were similarly split. Paul Goodman praised the film while also commenting on its calamitous music, feeble dialogue, and persistent lapses in style. Many felt that current events had progressed past the point where Hitler could be rendered as a buffoon. The New York Times remarked, quote, The great dictator may not be the finest picture ever made. In fact, it possesses several disappointing shortcomings. But despite them, it turns out to be a truly superb accomplishment by a truly great artist. And from one point of view, perhaps the most significant film ever produced. Reviewer Rudolf Arnheim, who had himself escaped Hitler's Germany, wrote a more astute view, saying, quote, Chaplin is the only artist who holds the secret weapon of mortal laughter. Not the laugh of superficial gibing that self-complacently underrates the enemy and ignores the danger, but rather the profound laughter of the sage who despises the spiritual weakness, stupidity, and falseness of his antagonist. Regardless of what anyone said, the film went on to become a massive hit, the most profitable film Chaplin ever made. The studios had drastically underestimated just how much people needed a genuine outlet for their feelings. Just like he had done with his previous war film, Shoulder Arms, Chaplin had dared to laugh at the scariest thing on earth, and people thanked him for it. The film was nominated for five Academy Awards, earning $3.5 million for U.S. and Canada. The film premiered in London on December 16th at the height of the Blitz, Nine million people across the UK went to see the film on opening day. The Great Dictator earned five million worldwide that same year. When the film was finally released in France in 1945, over eight million people flocked to the theater. Chaplin was even told by a refugee and former employee of the Nazi Ministry of Culture that Hitler himself had watched The Great Dictator 
twice in his private screening room alone. Chaplin replied, quote, I'd give anything to know what he thought of it. As the full extent of Nazi war crimes were revealed, Chaplin became somewhat sheepish, saying, quote, Had I known the actual horrors of the German concentration camps, I could not have made the great dictator. I could not have made fun of the homicidal insanity of the Nazis. I think that the film only gets better with age, and has set one of the best examples of how to fight fascism, an arrogant ideology that above all else is incapable of laughing at itself. It was classic Chaplin, risking everything to make his art, and somehow having the foresight and sheer gall to see it through to the end. And once again, what makes the film last is its deeply autobiographical content. Chaplin knew what a dictator was, because he was one. He controlled his little kingdom on the corner of Sunset and La Brea with an iron fist, and for all his shortcomings, he was just self-aware enough to know that at their core, big scary dictators are nothing more than babies throwing tantrums. As Ray Bradbury says in the documentary film The Tramp and the Dictator, quote, Chaplin brings us to tears because he reminds us of the potential of mankind lighting a lantern and keeping it inside while mankind goes on destroying itself and being there when the war is over, you relight the lantern to give us hope for tomorrow. And the world needed hope. After the war, 50 million people were dead. But while the Nazi terror ended when Hitler committed suicide in a bunker in 1945, America's paranoid search to identify and destroy outsiders was just beginning. And cut. In our fifth and final episode, Chaplin faces renewed pressure from anti-communists in Cold War America, tarnishing his reputation and forcing him to leave the country he's called home for over 30 years. Behind the Slate is an official podcast of the Arroyo Film Club. If you liked what you heard today, please subscribe, rate, and review. Hit us with the five stars. It really helps us out. If you have any questions, comments, or you just want to say hi, shoot me an email at behindtheslatepod at gmail.com. That's behindtheslatepod at gmail.com or on Instagram at behindtheslatepod. And until next time, that's a wrap. But you